These are OR scrubs. Oh, are they? Take dead aim on the Richards. Get them in the crosshairs and take them down. I'll talk some jive. I'll talk some jive like you never heard. Oh, yeah? Right on. Sit down. What happened to your hand? I got hit in the mirror. Really? How did that happen? I lost my temper myself. Son of a bitch, I'm sick of these dolphins. He's a ruthless adventurer and a con artist who preys on mentally feeble, sick old ladies. And he probably fucks them, too. I go to bed with all my friends. I don't want to your dad. I don't know you have a chance. everyone and welcome to the director's club podcast i'm jim laskowski i'm patrick Paul. um jim has been, jim has been replaced by a very fancy dinner host <laughs> good evening yeah everyone the table's been set the dinner reveals will be out shortly with your appetizers <laughs> yes. no that's true it's a very fancy Quiet guest, we haven't introduced you yet. I'm sorry. Well, you just heard is our very special guest. Of course, you know them from their blog, Panda Bear Shape. Uh Is that a WordPress or a blogspot? WordPress.com. Regina Barry. Hello. Hi, everyone. Really glad to be here. Thank you for having Uh, me back on. Yeah, yeah. You were on for the um, Richard Linkletter episode, which went well. Good episode. You said, yeah, you think so, Jim? Mm-hmm. You, what would you give Regina on that episode out of ten? I'd give her a I'd i give her a um a nine. Nine oh, out of ten. Nice. What would you what would you give yourself on that one? A six. Six? No. Alright, where where was I about? <laughs> uh seven point five. Yeah. That's I, I, I would flip me I'd flip me and you, but other than that, no, it's about right. Okay. <laughs> but anyway, Regina's back and as Jim mentioned, we're gonna be talking about Wes Anderson, a very fancy man indeed. Um, who's made some really wonderful, great movies. Uh, yeah. This was a breeze to prepare for. Indeed. Especially since I've watched most of them many times. And, yeah. you know, it's it's just, uh, you know, jarring my memory of like, oh, that's what I love, and that's what I love, and that's what I love. Yeah. I, di- um, I didn't rewatch Bottle Rocket. I, wa- I rewatched all the rest, though, and I, I saw Hotel Chevalier for the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Most mostly, it's just sort of even the ones I'm not a big fan of. It's just they're just delightful to watch and they're very easy. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of the antithesis of Nicholas Rogue, which was a great episode. I really enjoyed. Oh, thank it. you. That was yeah. uh, that. That is what happens when you just accidentally do an episode. Uh, so, like, pretty much, there was no lead up to anything for that episode. It was just every part of the conversation that we had. Um, other than you know a few edits here and there, was just what the episode turned out to be. So, yeah, it got weird. Almost got like weird. The, <laughs> almost like the podcast you got you made it weird with Pete Holmes. Yeah. It every single episode starts off with the guest going, "Oh, are we recording? Oh, I didn't I didn't realize it." It's like, yeah, I just hit yeah. record and we start talking. Yeah, Mark Maron does that too. That's true. Mm-hmm. Um, Mark Maron does a better job of leading. I mean, I haven't yes. listened to a lot of you made it weird. I'm, I'm not a huge fan of that one, but like Mark Maron does a good job of sort of leading it in, and then once it gets to a certain point, then he will uh, go ahead and introduce the person. That's true. Boy, oh boy. So we have to start out with some big news. Sure. Um, You're pregnant. Patrick, 
Mm, you weren't you, yeah. you weren't talking to me, right? No, no, no. Oh, Jim's pregnant. Oh, Mazel Tov. Oh, well, that's I'm first to know. Uh, I guess Patrick does know me better than I know myself. Sure. Yeah. Um. No, the the. The big news is, Patrick, you've left Facebook. Does this mean you're going back to Friendster? Uh, I've, I've joined. I'm committed 100% to Elo. <laughs> Elo is my uh, my one oh, true God. passion in life. Um, I'm Elo, Elo till I die. Elo for life. I have it tattooed on my belly in the old <laughs> in the in that old school uh, early 90s LA rapper font. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, <laughs> no, uh, yeah. Facebook has just been. Just kind of a nightmare, and so I'm just and I, I I deactivate my Facebook account maybe once a week, if not more. But now I'm just unfriending everybody and then deactivating it. So even if I tried to reactivate it, it wouldn't uh, work out. Yeah. So yeah, uh, I'm out. I'm out, that's, buddy. That's huge. I'm sure Ello is going to have to say hello to Google Plus. That is the worst it, fucking site. Have you been on Ello? No, I, I've it's heard impossible. a lot about it, though. It's impossible to see anything. On, it's it's the worst design thing. Remember CLLCT? We had oh, that, no. <laughs> that music sharing uh, site slash yeah. social networking site that we were, uh, that we were helped found? Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> it, was, it was the 001 Collective. We didn't have to do any of the web program or whatever. We were just part of the community uh-huh. that founded it. Like, that was way better designed than uh, LO. Yeah, and the guy who designed it's like he was eighteen, you know. Yeah. He was he was a super genius with mm-hmm. HTML and stuff. Um no, but I have a little announcement to make that will make some people happy, some people sad, some indifferent. <laughs> Just cover the spectrum of all of our fans. Um I decided to take a leave of absence from this here podcast. Uh, got to concentrate a little bit on my health, getting my life together, just essentially trying to be the best version of me I can be. Um, I've had some recent health issues, both mental, mentally and physically, that kind of need to be focused on and attended to. And I just, I just need to take a few months off and possibly return once things are a bit more stable and consistent for me. Um, it's been by no means a permanent leave at all. Um, I'm actually going to be on probably in late December for Robert Altman, and just to see where I'm at at that point, I might return regularly, but then I need to see what my school schedule is going to be like for the following semester to see if I can still uh, be a regular contributor here. So in the meantime, Patrick, you're going to take the helm. You've got some incredible guests by your side. Sure. Um, so I, I have no doubt that the podcast will, will continue on in all of its infinite glory. Well, as soon as, as, soon as he found thrive. out you were leaving, Brian De Palma signed up. Ooh! Oh my God! My, he's going to be my permanent co-host, and he's just, just going to talk about Hitchcock for every episode. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that is the downside. He's refused to do any episodes that aren't about Hitchcock. So, uh, also, we'd like to announce a change in format. This is now the Brian De Palma Hitchcock cast, starring <laughs> oh. Brian De Palma. I'm um, sure that voyeurism will come up at least once. Yeah, well, it, it actually, also the the form, the media is going to change. The medium is going to change. It's no longer a, a podcast. It's actually a uh, an ominous letter that he slips under your door. <laughs> but other than that, uh, <laughs> the same old directors' club that you know and love uh, will will remain. Um, it will just be a letter that Brian De Palma slips under your door that uh, is kind of ominous and also kind of reminiscent of Alfred Hitchcock. 
in like heady ways that the average person doesn't give a shit about. Well, that sounds like fun. I'm looking forward to it as yeah. a regular listener. And also mm-hmm. as a regular listener, I'm just going to speak for all the listeners and say that, Jim, I totally support you in your decision. And um, I hope that this works out for you and you're able to like get yourself to where you want to be. And I wish you all oh, the best. Thank you, Regina. That means a lot. I Yeah. I know, Patrick, you've also been very understanding about this. It's, no, I feel betrayed. I, 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 have, I hate to disagree. <laughs> like a character in a Brian De Palma movie. Right. <laughs> exactly. Oh, man. I, I've just been stabbed in the back by my twin. That's how I feel. I did reveal this to you via split screen. Yeah. Patrick called the split screen. Um, has Brian De Palma used Skype as a version of split screen? He might have for that redacted movie. I, oh, there right. might be yeah, some Skype in there. Brian De Palma made a found footage movie about Iraq. <laughs> really? He sure did. Yeah, he remade Casualties of War, essentially. Only takes place in Iraq and yeah, uses YouTube it's, and it's, Skype it's, and it's, stuff. It's, it's basically Abu Ghraib, the found footage Brian De Palma movie. It's called Redacted. And I haven't seen it. What? Have you seen it, Jim? You don't need to. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> It's not very good. Could, could, could there just be a bonus episode of you telling me like, like scenarios of ridiculous movies and me just not believing you? Yeah. Okay. So we're gonna we'll do a bonus episode in which I think of the craziest things that have ever existed, and then I I but I also mix them up with my own fake movies, and then you have to guess yeah. at the end of the episode which of those were real. Um, we can get <laughs> Jonathan, who's who who plays number one in uh, in Next Generation. Beardo. Oh, 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 um, uh, Riker. Uh, yeah, Riker. Yeah, uh, yeah. Jonathan Fraser? Yeah. Frakes. Yes. Frakes. 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 Okay, we'll get Jonathan Frakes in here. It'll be Beyond Belief, Movie Plots, Fact or Fiction. Do you, ever, you guys remember <laughs> that show? Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. I was just excited at the thought of Jonathan Frakes being in my apartment. Yeah, well, you know <laughs> what you were excited for? If, if Jonathan Frakes ever showed up in my apartment, the first thing I'd do is pull up a chair and ask him to sit down. <laughs> <laughs> you guys, you guys see that video, right? Hmm. Oh yeah, of of Riker, of Riker sitting down, where uh, basically Jonathan Frakes had a really terrible back problem throughout Next Generation or something. So if you watch like casually without it being mentioned during scenes, what. <laughs> Whenever he sits down in a chair, he just swings one leg over the chair. Like he's a cowboy <laughs> mounting a very short horse. It's really oh. crazy. Yeah, it is like he's mounting it. Like he's like a, a teacher who's... <laughs> wow. Anyway. I just, anyway, I Jim. Listen. Yeah. I, I'm, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to miss you. Especially that, now that we're not on speaking terms. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Um, no, but you know, you, you, I'll still I'll, I'll still be around. I'll still be uh, you know doing what I do in terms of producing and putting on the blog. And yeah. I think I'll, I think I'll still contribute a podcast parody song for each episode. I, that I, would I, be I, I, I could do that. That would yeah. be also that'd be helpful because I can't do yeah. two an episode. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> I know. I know. I, I will get a hundred. I will get a hundred emails. Hey, when's the next podcast coming out? And it's like, well, I, no inspiration. For a while there, I thought I had it with. Uh, Terrence Fisher. Um, no, I was going to... I can't even think of a parody. I don't know what I'm going to do for Terrence Fisher. I'll think about it. Yeah, you have time. Yeah, but... Um, no, we'll be yeah. good. Um, I, I need get some well. me time to decompress yeah. and, you know, invest in yeah. some other things going on. I mean, uh, of the things you have to do, if, if I had to list them, rank them, probably eat, you got to pray, uh-huh. you got to love. That's true. I got to love myself. That's what, that's what everyone keeps telling me. 
And if you got yeah. to do that in exotic locales because you're a, you're because you're an extraordinarily white wealthy white woman, like you know, <laughs> go ahead and do that, Jim. No, I just gotta love myself in my own room. That's all. That's all it takes. Yeah. But yeah. also eat and pray. I mean, don't forget to eat and pray. Yeah. Yeah. Don't forget to eat. Praying. Eh. Okay. So yeah. eat love. Okay. <laughs> I think Jim, I can do that. The Jim Laskowski story. <laughs> <laughs> it's you in your room hugging yourself. Or and it then, could be the, and then, that and then watching John Favreau Ed. movie that just came out, Chef. That's pretty much all that movie is. It's about eating it? and loving. Love, love your son and eat a lot of food. That's pretty much that movie. Okay, I'm down for that. Yeah. I support. I support John Favreau in his eat eat a lot of food and love your son propaganda. That's pretty um, much all it is. Oh, and by the way, just you know, Scarlett Johansson loves him, and that uh, gal from Modern Family loves him. So, yeah, that that would happen in real life. I'm sure she has been called upon by independent filmmakers. Oh, Sofia Ver- Ver- Vergara. Yeah, yeah, I, th- yeah, yeah. I think so. Mm-hmm. Twice now she's been called uh, to be uh, impossibly attractive woman who loves eh guy. Yeah. <laughs> John Turturro and John Favreau. Yeah, I'm sure that, that yeah. would happen. Mm-hmm. I mean, if I had to cast an impossibly attractive woman to love me, she'd be pretty high on the list. Yeah. Mm. That's, that's kind of how I felt about dating. Was like, I'm going to cast an impossibly attractive woman to love me. <laughs> <laughs> that's... That that that's my book coming out, you know. And uh, wait, ro- that's audition. That's audition. You're saying you're the protagonist of audition. Just you know what? My chance won. <laughs> you steered me. You steered me through, Regina. Thank you. Good job. Yeah. Oh man. Uh, hey Jim, do you want to talk about what we watched this week? Oh my god, I sure do. But there is a lot. Of, there is a lot of static. Boy, I hope it goes away. Tell me what you watched this week. Was it Mondo Mondo Kane? Did you watch it like it freeze? Please just tell me what you watched. So, Regina, we usually like to start with the guests. Oh, no. Um, what have, uh, <laughs> what have no. you watched recently? Um... Well, a lot of things, but um, the thing that I decided to talk about is a movie called Concussion. Um, you can find it on Netflix Watch hmm. instantly. Um, it came out last year, um, debut of director Stacey Passon. I don't know how to pronounce her last name. Passon looks about right. Sure. And it sounds it sounds Frenchy, you know, yeah. good for a director. Um it's uh, it's a really interesting concept. Um, it starts out in a pretty kind of cliche place, but um, I think it goes a pretty uh, interesting direction. So it's about um, the protagonist, Abby, played by Robin Weigert, who's amazing. Um, she's probably best known for her role as Calamity Jane on Deadwood. Um, she's an incredible actress, and um, she plays a homemaker in a wealthy North New Jersey who's a lesbian, so she's a wife and two kids, and she's uh, very dissatisfied um, with her role as a domestic stay-at-home mom. Is she, is she married to a man or a woman? In she's that? married to a woman. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's not, it's not like, you know, secret lesbian with a husband. It's like, like no, she and her wife are you know, 
put together and women and have a family. Okay. Uh, but she's just dissatisfied uh, with that role as a stay-at-home mom. Um, so she kind of escapes it by going back to her old job and then um, starting a new job as a sex worker. Um, yeah, it's, it's pretty interesting. I mean, uh, the reason that I was really drawn to it um, was uh, purely uh, because of my own feminist agenda. Um, I you know, like the fact that it was a woman director, um, she, um, an open lesbian director, um, and the fact that the movie is sort of a critique of um, what's, uh, what's called, at least in my circles, uh, queer assimilation. So the idea that um, for the LGBT community, um, all that is needed is like the right to marry and that, you know, if someone is gay or bi or trans, that they just want to be like straight people. And that's sort of like an unquestioned thing. And it's and like marriage equality. And like once, you know, that's in all 50 states, we're done and that's all we need. And this movie really um, troubles that because it's about uh, this woman who's attained that ideal where, you know, she's with her partner, they're out to their straight friends, they're successful, they have children, but she's still really unhappy. Kind of like a lot of, you know, protagonists in movies um, who are in that situation find themselves like it's it's not dissimilar to uh, American Beauty in that way. Um, so I, I think it's 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 just really interesting to kind of see um, a, a queer character who isn't in this role of like, I am struggling for equality. I am struggling to come out to my friends. Like it's, it's beyond that. Like it's beyond the one Oh one, um, which is why I think it's uh, such an important movie, um, especially for where we are as like the LGBT community. in 2014. Um, and like I said, Robin Weigert is just amazing. Um, it's great to see um, a movie that's, uh, that's about sex and about sexuality um, from a woman's point of view because um, the sex scenes are very different from one what one might expect in a movie. They're very like sexy and intimate, but they're not objectifying. They're not what, fetishizing. I, so I'm interested. What is so I I was thinking about this because um, I was thinking about this actually way back. Remember when we, we did Almo Dovar uh, episode? Like, that was like mm-hmm. one of our first episodes uh-huh. and he shoots a lot of, you know, he, he loves actresses and he shoots a lot of beautiful actresses naked, mm-hmm. but he's a gay man. So it's like, uh, and so I was trying to, when I was watching it, I was trying to think like, what's the difference between this and the male gaze? And you know, like, what, what can you say like specifically what the female gaze, if. Um, I think that's something that's still kind of being constructed, you know? Yeah. Um, I think there's a lot of um, artists who are kind of, raising that question, you know, because obviously, you know, women have sexual desires, women, you know, have that like, you know, visual pleasure, you know, that's not a, that's not a gendered thing. Um, but I think, um, being, you know, being socialized as a woman, um, you, you kind of have, you're more aware of yourself as the object of that gaze. Uh And it's, Sort of mm-hmm. not just like taking for granted uh, that the audience is going to relate to that pure voyeurism. Right. So um, I actually haven't seen an Almodovar movie in a really long time mm-hmm. uh, to my deep chagrin because he's amazing. Um, but this movie, I think it's really different because, um, you know, there are scenes where you see women who are experiencing desire for each other and um, and, and like... 
the sex is really hot. It's really hot lesbian sex, and I liked it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> not ashamed to say it. Um, but it's it's very like intimate, and and the camera isn't like focused on their breasts or their ass. It's focused on like their. It, it, there's a lot of like close uh, close like um, shots of their face and like how they're relating to each other and just like. Um, there's at least one sex scene that's, oh my God, it's absolutely gorgeous, um, where it's just two women gazing at each other. And that's like, that's all you see of it, but it's just, it's so um, like, like visceral and, and you get like exactly what they're feeling, but you don't see below their shoulders like at all. Um, wow. Yeah, it's, it, it's, I mean, it, it's, it, part of it is like just the acting, but it's just like, you, you feel like you're there with them. You feel like you're in bed with them. It's not, it doesn't feel like, it doesn't feel like a performance. It's not like, you know, being at a, at a strip club or something. It's, right. it's like you feel like you're, you know, there. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we have to stop the podcast right yeah, now. Yeah, everyone stop. Take a cold shower break. Um, I, I, I want to watch the movie. <laughs> no, I, well, um, this reminds me a little bit of the movie High Art, which is a film that uh, I saw early on. Um, I think it was 98, maybe, 99. And I remember being taken with... Uh, the portrayal. I think it, it, the woman who directed it um, is a lesbian, and she uh, captured this really beautifully pure relationship that develops between Ali Sheedy and uh, a gal whose name escapes me. But I remember that was like one of the first films I thought also captured just what it's like to um, experience desire from a woman's point of view. Um, and, it, and the sex scenes were shot very tastefully and intimately. And not, not in an exploitive way at all. Yeah, and I, I think that's. I mean, I mean that to me is just so powerful. You know, I have um, I have a friend who's a performance artist, and she, and this is something that you know she's very interested in is like is um, how do you make um, art that is erotic and is about having sex but isn't objectifying and doesn't and, and sort of bridges the gap between um, the audience's voyeur and the performer as objects. So. I think mm. she should watch this movie, and I'm going to tell her the next time I see her. Um, anyway. Have you seen Blue is the Warmest Color? Not yet. Is okay. that still on I'm Netflix? curious about that. Be- oh, yeah, yeah. I think it I is. Think watching All right, we should yeah. watch that. that. Well, that was directed by a man. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's what I'm th- like. Th- there was some controversy about the sex scenes and the way they were shot. I mean, more of just, I hear he was a complete asshole to yeah, them. Yeah, yeah. That, that's kind of. sort of came out in interviews. Yeah, I, I heard that too, which is one of the reasons like I haven't watched it because just just that thought makes me really uncomfortable. I, I so yeah, I no, I definitely agree. But on the other hand, like there's a lot of great movies in which the director was just an asshole. Well, yeah, <laughs> like a director being an asshole doesn't necessarily mean a director is being exploitative. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but yeah. I, I mean, I, I'm not necessarily aware of the controversy or the statements made by the actresses, so I can't speak one way or another to this specific example. Um, but uh, yeah, like whenever I hear like, "Oh, the director was an asshole," that doesn't automatically make me think like, "Oh, the director was taking advantage of people." Um, right? Yeah, no, I, I, I guess that's true, and I, I can't speak from a place of knowing too much about the situation. You know, I just sort of read like like little comments on you know the dissolve that kind of mentioned i didn't like actually you know study the situation but you know still i i do have to be kind of cynical just because you know often there are power dynamics when it's you know young actresses who aren't really established in their career and it's like you you know this is a big break for them you know they're you know he's their boss pretty much you know so there is like a sort of an inherent power dynamic that 
yeah, just understood. <laughs> biases how Jim, I Jim, did you see mm-hmm. uh fucking a mall? Oh my god, that's one of my favorite movies ever. Is that by far? Is that like uh that's a that's a a Swedish movie Lucas Moodyson, I believe yeah. directed it. Mm-hmm. Um that that is one of the best portrayals of young love that I've ever seen. And that's about two women, right? For sure. Yeah, like, it's about two like they're teenage yes. girls. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I haven't seen that movie. I just was re- cuz mm-hmm. honestly what happened was I was looking up uh, the strange color of your body's tears, mm-hmm. and I got fucking Amal and Emir uh, mixed up. Oh wow! Because <laughs> I hadn't seen I hadn't <laughs> seen either of them, so I was like, "These are the people that did fucking Amal." It's not. This. And then I looked up and I was like, "Oh no!" But I was but it was on my mind, and that's. Um, yeah, we should see all these movies. Yeah, we should, we should watch more lesbian movies. I would see. love that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that would be great. Do a bonus episode. Yeah. 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 Lesbians in film. Mm-hmm. Lesbians on film. That would be our most downloaded episode just by the name. People yeah, searching right? iTunes, I told, lesbians. I would totally be down for that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that would be, I, I think that would be a lot of fun. Um, j- just um, something quick that, uh, that I also wanted to mention about uh, concussion um, that I found really striking about it is how um, how her dissatisfaction with uh, being a homemaker is portrayed. Um, there, it, there is the opening scene where um, Abby suffers the titular concussion, and the reason that she does is because uh, her young son threw a baseball at her head, and oh, wow. she just reacts to it by like screaming at him and she's just like what did you think would happen you little shit and i just found that like oddly liberating (laughs) where i was just like wow this is showing someone who's supposed to be a super mom like kind of kind of fucking up and kind of doing something that she's not supposed to do but it's not because she's mean it's because she's she's really frustrated and disappointed in her son and it's just this like really real moment and there's um throughout the throughout the film there are just these moments where like her her domestic duties are just like creeping in on her where you kind of know that she's feeling so trapped and there's just like a giant mountain of unfolded laundry next to her or she gets a phone call where it's like the noose is tightening and you and you just kind of notice like that there's groceries on the table next to her and it's like just like her every everything that she has to do and everything that she has to be for her family and her community is just like avalanching on her um i mean it's it it is a, a first film um and that's pretty obvious i mean it kind of loses energy and peters out towards the end and the script has some pretty big flaws in it um but i think that this director has a lot of potential and um apparently she's coming out with a second movie next year and i for one am looking forward to it so yeah uh so you 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 commented several times on the actress the lead actress being mm-hmm. really amazing like mm-hmm. So I imagine um, in being a sex worker, do you see her with various different clients? Yeah. Um, uh, and does she have to play like it, is is part of is it like she's playing a wide range of like different kinds of personalities to serve their needs or like what what makes it sort of an amazing performance for you? Um, I just found her to be well. Well, first I was amazed when I found out that she had been on Deadwood because I didn't recognize her mm-hmm. at all. I mean, I mean, and obviously you know she's not like like a dirty alcoholic cowboy in this movie, so you know that does kind of separate. I'm sorry, it. what movie are we talking about? Deadwood. Oh, yeah. Um, okay. I, I thought we were talking about a dirty alcoholic cowboy movie. No, we're talking about a dirty alcoholic H 
HBO series, Cowboy oh, series. Okay. Um, but but um, I, I don't know. There's just something about her that I found so relatable. You know, even when she's making these really shitty decisions, um, and even when you know she is being like annoying, pretentious, uh, upper middle class mom. And I, I think you've Patrick, you've probably heard me say a million times that I get so frustrated with movies where the main thrust of the drama is boo-hoo, I'm rich and have nothing to do. Sure. Um, but I was just rooting for her the whole time. I just, I, I found that I was like really empathizing with her and she, I mean, I mean, just like very subtle but expressive. Um, and yeah, I mean, I mean, it's just, and I mean, you know, and as a sex worker, she's really sexy in an unconventional way. Um, the guy that she's working with describes her as a hot dyke housewife, and uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, pretty, pretty yeah, accurate. So, uh, to me, it um, sounds like the key difference is like if it boohoo, I'm rich is like this movie seems to suggest that the problems. I mean, it's not that you know being rich automatically means that you don't have problems, or oh, that yeah. your problems aren't valid, or that your problems don't make for good drama. Yeah. But it's it seems like the suggestions for what like it almost seems like the suggestions for what her problems are is that she's rich and like and that she's bought into this whole Yeah. upper class sort of domestic lifestyle and like Yeah. And that's a different take than just Kevin Spacey's unhappy and dripping off in the shower. Right. Or like Sophia Coppola films where it's just like Scarlett Johansson who has nothing to do because her husband makes so much money wandering around Tokyo. Like, like, like this is a woman who is, you know, like an animal caught in a trap trying to chew off her own foot. Yeah. Like, like, like you just really get that sense of, of the, other, the other movie right? I kept thinking about when you were describing this movie to me is safe. Um, I was just going to say that, ah! <laughs> but yeah, no, it's true. Totally true. Um, I, I would love to get Regina's take on that movie. I haven't seen it. <laughs> uh, oh, you will. You know why? Because it's coming out on Criterion. Finally. Yeah, yeah. They announced that. It, finally. It, it's been like out of print forever, right? Yes. And it's finally coming out on Criterion. I'll give it another look. I wasn't a huge fan of the save the first time. but no. um, I mean, I really like Todd Haynes, like what I've seen of him. Yeah. Um, I, I really liked uh, Far From Far From Heaven. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, well, Todd Haynes is another. Todd, well, like the the thing you'd mentioned, like this isn't a narrative of a struggle for acceptance, right? And that was sort of like that. Greg Araki and Todd Haynes and Gus Van Zant, like in the in the early '90s, that was sort of what they were rebelling against, and sort of they're the mm. filmmakers who have sort of survived of that sort of new queer uh-huh. wave where it was like like Gus Van Zandt did Mala Noche and that is just about a guy a gay guy who's sort of a predator um mm-hmm. and these and he's like obsessed with these Latino teenagers and there's just a lot of weird stuff and he's this super deeply flawed kind of fucked up guy and mm-hmm. the things that are fucked up about him have nothing to do with him being gay they just have to being with kind of using people and like uh-huh. Like, it's a really interesting movie in just having such kind of a despicable main character, but also really empathizing with him and stuff. And, yeah. like, Greg Araki was, is just fucking angry. <laughs> like, Greg, Greg Araki will... will uh, it, it, His early films get the same visceral reaction that uh, Rob Zombie gets from me. Well, sure, he only makes movies about awful people, but they're not polite, like... I have AIDS, but that doesn't mean I'm not human. Right. Like narratives, which right. is sort of where most of the culture was in the early 90s. And yeah. Todd Haynes did like Poison, where Poison was like, it was a it was a triptych where it was three different 
it was sort of like an anthology movie, but they were all they kept going back and forth between them, mm-hmm. and they were all different styles. And like one is sort of an AIDS allegory, one is sort of uh, about just growing up uh, mm-hmm. gay as a child. But then the third one is like this really weird S and M kind of movie. Um, I'm listening. It's it, it that climaxes in like uh, it's all about like men in prison, and it like climaxes in this guy like with his. I climaxes in this guy. Yeah, oh, climaxes in this guy. It climaxes with this guy who's like shirtless with his arms open and just like people are spitting on him and he's just like swallowing their spit. Oh. So like it's it's way fucking out there. Yeah. And that's and that's why I always like yeah, love those films. Sounds like a normal Friday night for me. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is why Jim has to take some time off for health reasons. It's because uh, <laughs> oh. <laughs> Jim got Jim got the flu. Jim Jim got all sorts of things from letting people spit into his mouth. <laughs> um, no comment. Yeah. <laughs> Although I mean, uh, I gotta say, like uh, when I I saw I saw my own private Idaho at the age of uh, like eleven, and that was a, an incredibly vulnerable time for me. Sure. Um, and and just like the experience of you know watching River Phoenix. Uh, by a campfire confessing his feelings to Keanu Reeves at the time, I just felt like this connection, not based on gender. It was just like, oh yeah, I totally understand that longing. Like even though I'm 11 years old, yeah, just yeah. the idea of being close to somebody, no matter who they are, and that's kind of the philosophy I've carried my whole life. And I, I kind of attribute that to my experience of seeing something like My Own Private Idaho, which was like probably like the first kind of art film that I rented from Blockbuster, of all things, and just was like, what is this? But I'm so loving it. And, I, you know, that's 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 the, my first experience with, you know, queer cinema, and I think that informed a lot of my feelings about, um, you know, just my emotional reactions to movies, too. Hey, you were a much cooler 11-year-old than I was. If I saw <laughs> yeah. my own private Idaho at 11, I would have been bored out of my mind. What is it? Oh, I'm sorry. I saw the motorcycle. I thought it would be like a cool movie where guys shot guns. <laughs> That's what I would have been like at 11. You were a much cooler 11-year-old than me. I was just like, whoa, there's a house falling onto the ground while River Phoenix is having an orgasm. What does that represent? Hmm. Yeah, it's a it's a it is a pretty crazy uh, visual movie, but mm-hmm. no, I always respond. Yeah, you respond to that way more because it's you go know, well. It doesn't feel pitched to straight people. I get like yeah, mm-hmm. like all those acceptance things. It just feels implicit that the audience is straight. Yeah, yeah, and <laughs> like it, when a when a movie is already like all right, this movie is going to be a complicated movie uh, about. A minority, and we're not going to like spoon feed you why it's complicated. We're yeah. just going to give like you know some Spike Lee movies are like that too, where it's just where it's just like you just feel it, and it and like his his main theme in like Jungle Fever is a lot more complicated than just whites and blacks shouldn't be together. It's about just the weird dynamic that makes that so hard. And everything, and yeah. he doesn't really stop to explain it to white people. Yeah, I have to say the concussion does a really good job of that too. Where there's a few instances, and and it's you know very light touch. It's not like I said, it's not it's not a movie about like oh this is an oppressed person from an oppressed group. But there's just a few instances of these like microaggressions that her her friends and her coworkers kind of levy at her. Where it's nothing big. It's not like oh you're sinning. It's just sort of like she's trying to express something about herself as an individual and people just kind of like 
tie it into like her identity in this really clunky way where it's like their perception of her as a lesbian gets in the way of her perception as her as an as an individual yeah um Mm. that i thought was like and and it's like it's just these like little subtle fleeting off like socially awkward moments but you know they, they resonate if if you've experienced that like they really resonate that's really cool um that's interesting uh, yeah yeah so netflix watches or just prostitute movies should watch more of those yeah what yeah. was that was that godard prostitute movie oh viva savi yeah i, I like oh Viverse yeah Savie. i rewatch it yeah i should rewatch that because i don't i mean i'm gonna rewatch we're gonna do a godard episode and i'm gonna go through all of them <laughs> <laughs> hooray yeah but uh but uh start with uh belle du jour um i think that's bunel maybe yeah that's a mm-hmm. that's bunel yeah that's that's a hell of a movie Saw that a long time ago, but I really loved it. Knights in Cabiria. That's a Fellini. Also. Mm-hmm. Good. Yeah. Rewatch Midnight Cowboy. Yeah, Midnight Cowboy, certainly. Yeah. Showgirls. Oh, yeah. yeah. There's a movie called Whore from the, I want to say, late 80s. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty Woman. If- Pretty Woman. The Aww. most. The most. The, that, like, that movie was really breaking ground. Oh, yeah. For feminism and for. Yeah. Discuss it in a women's studies class, actually. Of course you did. It's one of the most horrific movies. <laughs> yeah. Who directed that? Who directed Pretty Woman? Gary Marshall. Marshall. Gary Marshall. <laughs> Gary Marshall episode. Yet. We haven't done a Gary Marshall episode yet because I don't. <laughs> what, what did he do? He did like the American Graffiti sequel. Oh, he's a horrible director. He no, did New Year's uh, Eve. No, no, we n- no never. So we'll I do a Penny Marshall episode, yeah. if only so we can talk about A League of Their Own, but a Gary Marshall episode, no. You could just do the Marshall episode and mm-hmm. just, like, everyone... Yeah. All right, you know, I'm, I'm not going to tell you what to do. <laughs> hey, no Jim. Podcast. What, Patrick? What, what have you seen recently? Oh, I've, I've got something for you. Yeah? Um. So October is right around the corner, and this time it of is. year... Uh, the podcast really likes to embrace the horror genre. I've already, I've already, I've already been watching pretty much nothing but horror movies. Oh, the past and week. you know, since I'm taking a break, I figured, yeah, I'll contribute my take on a film that might emphasis on might be mm-hmm. my favorite horror movie I've seen since May. Wow, when no. did you see May? If you say since May, when Probably was the first two, time you saw May? Gee, I think maybe ten years ago. Okay, so like pretty close to after it like went to video. Yeah, I don't think no, I didn't see it in theater. So um, that's like a 2002 movie. Have you seen May, Regina? May? Yeah. Oh, I thought you meant like like the the best horror movie you've seen in the past <laughs> few months. Right. I was, I was like, that's faint praise, but no, I haven't. Oh man, we, we we'll watch May. We'll watch Carrie and May back to back. Oh yeah, that's a good double bill. Okay. It's real good. It's and real good. I don't, I don't know what I'm getting in for, but I can it's not. It. It's not, like, horrific. It's good. Okay. You'll like it. Anyway. I don't know what, if uh, everyone will get on board with that statement. Um, it's an interesting mix of reviews over on Letterboxd, and some love it as much as me, some didn't. Um, but this movie not only made me laugh hysterically, but genuinely creeped me out. I was not once distracted, genuinely surprised by it. It's a film called Resolution. And uh, Eric Childress talked about this team of directors and their follow-up, which is, I think, coming out on VOD later this year, called Spring, which he said was the best thing at the Toronto International Film Festival he saw this year. 
Um, so I went back and checked out this other film just based on the premise. Um, it's uh, about a guy named Chris who is a meth addict, and uh, Michael is his best friend, and Michael wants to just get him help and uh, try to get him to rehab. Uh, Michael chains Chris up in this decrepit little house that he's renting and vows to keep him there for a week to get him off the drug and just have him, you know, sweat it out, basically, cold turkey. Uh, And so Michael gets pretty bored just sitting around the cabin waiting for his friend to get clean. And he decides to go off and explore, you know, this nature trail and um, all these weird, unusual, unexplained occurrences happen and a lot of strange people show up like a like a creepy french guy who lives in a winnebago and smokes red marijuana um there's three cult members hanging out by the river waiting for a celestial messiah to land his vessel there's a uh patient from the nearby mental institution who's allowed to roam around at night and tap on windows um Michael also finds several pieces of media scattered throughout, uh, various cassette tapes, books, audio recordings, uh, 35-millimeter film, and each one sort of contains snippets of a story that usually has a bad, unhappy ending. Um, So there's also the uh, owners of this house, there's a pair of meth heads, there are so many things popping up throughout this movie, and you kind of go, well, what the fuck? What, where's this movie going? What direction is this taking? And that's actually kind of what the movie is about. It is very much like Cabin in the Woods. Um, it comments a lot on the horror movie. It also manages to just fit a lot of different creepy things into a 90-minute story. And if you just boil it down, it's really about like the, the effects of negative energy surrounding you and our own response to watching these this negative energy, and also the, just playing with our expectations of how a horror movie should play out. So it's it's very funny. Um, well, I mean, it starts off as just a basic, like, okay, you know, this friend wants to help out his friend by getting him clean, and the conflict is really just them hanging out together and talking and trying to, you know, sort through it, and then just like all these weird things start happening and like they're very tropey things that show up and it's really just the conflict of like what the fuck is going on and what's going to happen to us because as the movie goes on crazier and creepier things start happening and they start to reflect what the characters are going through like at one point their laptop turns on and um they're seeing themselves and seeing what could be their ending play out on the laptop so they're like constantly questioning what's going on and it's really fucked up <laughs> and it's really scary, but it's also really, really well written and funny. Um, there's a lot of dialogue in here that, you know, could have, I feel like, you know, some, some stuff thrown in here or could, could have been like stuff Kevin Smith might've came up with early in his career. That would have been really funny and quotable. But um, the thing I like about it is it just, it, it just plays like as a more, raw indie version of cabin in the woods it's it's again like a commentary on the horror film but it's also a love letter to horror films and then it becomes really moving by the end because you've spent so many so much time with these two characters um so it's one of those genre flipping movies that 
is very clever and creepy. And I don't know. I think, I don't know if everyone's going to have like this kind of, you know, insane love for it the way I have, but uh, I just like, because a lot of times, even lately, watching movies has been challenging, and like I, I especially if I rewatch something, I'm usually doing other things or you know multitasking. But this movie made me sit up and just I was glued to it. I was laughing. I was creeping out. I was you know like jumping, and I was like, this is exactly why I still love watching movies. And the fact that it's really clever and comments a lot about something that I love, and has a very interesting ambiguous ending. So it's one of those movies that you don't want to give away too much, but I'm, I'm pretty sure you're going to love this movie, Patrick. I want to hear your take on it when you see it. So when you say it's like Cabin in the Woods, I always just think of Cabin in the Woods as a comedy. Like it's a horror comedy, sure, it's all about horror movies and stuff, but there's really at no point in Cabin in the Woods where it's trying to scare you more than it's trying to make you laugh. That's true. I'm, Is that true of this movie? Um, Yes. I I mean, there's there's I would say the comedy... Uh, element is stronger than the horror, but I think it's just like the, the idea of all these crazy things happening and you're not knowing why, and they're not like jump scares. I mean, there, there's a moment where somebody taps on a window and then, of course, somebody uh, knocked on my door, and that probably informed my response to that. Um, but that was like, I mean, throughout the movie, I think just things just start building weirdness as opposed to like being genuinely scary. I think it's more of just a creepy building of tension rather than like a scary movie. Um, but like now I'm dying to see what these directors do next. And according to Eric, and he's not like, you know, King horror movie or anything Their Their next movie is supposed to be pretty phenomenal from what I hear. It's like uh before sunset only as a monster movie. So I'm like, okay, I'm I'm down for that after seeing Resolution, which um, I saw on Amazon Instant. So I I don't I'm I'm hoping it's on Netflix too. I think 2011 maybe. It got a lot of you know like you know your Badass Digest and a lot of the sites that would cover something like this at like South by Southwest or whatever gave it a lot of great reviews. Um, I just honestly I'd not heard of it and. When Eric described it as just like, you know, uh, it's a movie about a guy trying to get his friend clean, I was like, okay, I'll, I'll get on board for that. And I was really surprised where it went. Um, and much like um, another movie that you recommended, Oculus, I was really, like, the thing about that movie that surprised me was just how beautifully edited it was. I love oh, that. Yeah. I love the rhythm of the editing in that movie a lot. I, I loved Oculus. I, I really like Oculus. I really, I, there's nothing about it that's just like really amazing. Right. But. Man, it's so nice to watch a, a modern horror movie where nothing feels perfunctory. Mm-hmm. Where like it's just it's just telling a story, and it's got characters who are real characters, and it's got a sense of humor, and it surprises you, and you don't know what's ha- going to happen next. And yeah, I really enjoyed Oculus. And that's how I, that's I, I how should, I would describe gonna, Resolution as well. So I'm gonna have to check out Resolution. Yeah, it, it sounds really good. So I, so I mean, but so the there's a lot of tropey things that happen in Resolution, but you wouldn't say that. Is it? No, I don't know. I don't. I don't want to spoil anything. Yeah, that's but is hard. resolution like? Um, is it the? Is the overall structure of the film uh, like based on anything, or is it just sort of encountering a lot of little tropes? Um, it le- like, it leads it, up to a reason why they're encountering all these little tropes. Yeah, um, it's not like they're just there just to be there. They they mean something by the very end. Um, 
you know, and then when they discover one of the last, you know, bits of um, media, um, it sort of informs a little bit about how things are going to play out, but it also subverts your expectations at the same time. So I really love the way this movie wrapped up. I, I, because I, it sort of takes a breath, and from being kind of uh, highly energetic, and just decides to let these two characters kind of um, come to terms with one another, and I really like that a lot. I, I just, it's it's a really interesting movie. I don't know why, like, um, I didn't hear about too much about it until recently. I think, I mean, th- these directors are going to be someone that we want to follow for the future. I think because they're really original. Sure. And um, that's yeah. That's how, I mean. That's how I felt about Afflicted, and that's how I feel, felt about Oculus as well. Yeah. So maybe there is. It, it, it's nice to be sort of. Oh, I don't have to. <laughs> I know you don't like Rob Zombie at all, but like for me, I'm like Rob Zombie and Eli Roth were the two sort of horror filmmakers that I was just sort of like hoping that they can capture the things that made you know Hostel and Devil's Reject so good again. And Eli Roth, I mean, the the pace, the pace he makes movies. I thought it was, I thought it was Green, whatever that movie is, the Green Inferno or whatever. I thought it was supposed to come out this year. I think it's not coming out till next year. Oh, wow. But um, but uh, like you know, I, I don't like Ty West. No, I think no. I mean, he's awful. I think the VHS movies are pretty bad. I think I liked Your Next, but Adam Wingard isn't necessarily the direction of it. I thought it was really bad, and just like the camera work and stuff. Mm-hmm. So. Um, it was. It's not necessarily the sort of thing that I get real, super excited about. Um, like that was the other thing about Oculus that I liked was it was just it was shot well and it was edited well and it wasn't shaky cam and it wasn't just all right. Well, let's get a lot of coverage because we don't know what we want this thing to look like. Yeah. Like it was just it was very purposeful um, in the way it was put together and it's become shockingly rare to see horror movies that are purposeful like that. Also, really quickly. After Hours, I um, rewatched that again, and God, that just, every time, like, I mean, it started out as, like, my 10th favorite movie of all time, and it keeps going up every time I watch it, and uh, this time, I, like, compl- like as when I first saw it, of course, it's just this, you know, highly energetic, well-shot, well-edited, well-acted sort of manic nightmare, and now it's like, I sort of reinterpreted it as a misappropriation of desire and the consequences of trying to escape it. And it often results in kind of being emasculated. Like I realized at the beginning, um, you know, Griffin Dunn's character is looking around the office longingly at other cubicles when he comes across like someone's framed photo of a family. Then he goes home, tries to watch TV, feels completely alone, decides to take a book with him to a restaurant And the book, of course, is Tropic of Cancer. And Paul is sort of, like, longing for this kind of adventure and freedom that Henry Miller can capture in his his writing. And, you know, it's weird how, like, you know, the encounter that he has with Rosanna Arquette's character is just like, oh, she knows uh, the quote from the book. She goes and approaches him as opposed to vice versa. And... It's, you know, the possibility of intimacy is, like, really drawn drawing towards him, so that's why he pursues her. But then every time he does, there's miscommunication, and pretty much every woman he comes across after that uh, initial encounter punishes him. So it's like the desire for intimacy becomes um, 
you know, uh, something that can't be satiated at all. And then he tries to escape it. And then that escape becomes a nightmare in of itself. It's just a beautiful black comedy. That's like, I, every time I watch it, I'm just kind of amazed by how everything about it works. Like nothing feels, um, I guess perfunctory. Is that the right word? Just like everything, like everything that it fits so perfectly. And I just, and it's, and you can tell that Scorsese did this at an incredibly, difficult time for him emotionally like he was going through divorce and he couldn't get funding for his next movie and this just feels like a punk rock movie and i love everything about it and every time i watch it i just want to like scream to the high heavens and this is one of those movies that pretty much everyone i've been close to i've sat down and watched it with them and told them isn't this an amazing movie and they all say yes so just wanted to bring that one up again (laughs) sure Martin scored who? Yeah, who, I know. Who? He's he's Martin Mull. Martin Mull. Oh, I love that guy. Yeah, oh, yeah. so cool. so good on Roseanne. So good uh, on those uh, panel shows in the seventies. <laughs> <laughs> um, Mart, yeah, Martin Mull. I was one of those people. I I just knew as being on TGIF sitcoms. He's Colonel Mustard. Yeah, but you don't know that when you're a child. Yeah, that like he had this whole other comedy career. And he's friends with all these people who went on to be famous. And Martin Mull never really went on to be famous. <laughs> he ended up on TGI. Yeah. Yeah, he, went on t- he ended up on Sabrina, the Teenage Witch. Um, so I want to talk about the one I love. Uh, if, I can, if I can approach this the anti-gym way. i just name the movie title right off the bat. Um, but uh, can, I, can we go ahead and, and uh, go into spoilers? Ooh. And we'll just – we'll, uh, we'll have the we'll have the timestamp. Because we can't talk – otherwise we can have to talk about something else. Yeah, that's true. Because I, I, number one, I don't think the premise of the movie is a spoiler. A lot of people don't like to spoil the thing, sort of the inciting incident, but the inciting incident happens about 15 minutes into the movie. Yeah. And to me, that's not a spoiler. That's just the premise. Um, and sometimes it's fun to let a premise, like, to sneak up on you. You know, for me, Oculus, the premise snuck up on me, and that was way more enchanting than I thought a haunted mirror movie was going to be. But, like, I don't think it's necessarily a spoiler. No, but, no, not at all. I but I do want to go into details as well. Um, so can we just say right now, um, if you haven't seen the one I love, it's on demand. Oh, God. it. I, rent, I rented this on iTunes, and I've never rented anything on iTunes, but it was the worst. The audio kept going out of sync like every 45 seconds, and I had to pause it really? and press play again. Wow. Uh, yeah, so to, <laughs> to go ahead and I'll, I'll do a... Uh, to warn everybody, like I saw the worst version of this movie, which is the version that stops for a second every ninety seconds. Um, hmm. That's but uh, that's, that's unfortunate. It's on iTunes, on Amazon. Um, personally, at this point, I think whenever I rent a movie now, I'm just going to pay for the rental, you know, and support the filmmakers. But then I'm just going to pirate it so I can actually watch it because Amazon streaming quality is garbage and this iTunes it looked good but it kept stuttering along and the audio was out of sync like <laughs> I think from now on I'm just gonna pirate movies and then pay um, pay the filmmakers elsewhere uh, you should do that you should do that for uh, coherence that's what I'm gonna do for coherence that's I, that's absolutely the next movie I'm gonna do for coherence good. our next movie I'm gonna do that for is I'm gonna I'm gonna find coherence torrent and then I'm gonna rent it on iTunes or whatever anyway one I, the one I love, we'll go ahead and say this will be the last movie we talk about. 
uh, this will be the one I love spoiler discussion. Go to our website, directorsclubpodcast.com. Um, you will find in the show notes all of the timestamps, so you will and you will know when this discussion happens. And it won't be spoiled for you. So anyway, the fact that Bruce Willis was dead the whole time just felt kind of bullshit to me because it's like, well, how long has he been dead? How has he not noticed his wife not talking to him? Um, no, so the one I love is a science fiction uh, romance movie about a uh, sort of a, a couple who their marriage is on the rocks. And the therapist uh, has sort of, I don't know if he owns the cabin or if he... He's... He just sends them to this like couples retreat for yeah. the weekend. Mm-hmm. Which is just sort of this uh, like nice cabin. It's not in the woods. It's, <laughs> it, it's not really given what that is. It, yeah, it's, it's just sort of like... It's a, an, an isolated vacation spot. Yeah, I, th- I thought they... It's, it's a pretty typical retreat center, you know, Re- not... Okay, I've never been on a retreat. Oh, so. okay, yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's like, it's a, it's a nice place, kind of removed from civilization, but, you know, still, like, accessible by roads and everything. They're mm-hmm. not, like, you know, 128 days later. Yeah, it's not a cat. It's not a cabin in the woods. Oh, forget. Anyway, yeah. But, um... And uh, as they get there, they begin to realize that Whenever one of them goes into this, only happens in the guest house, right? Yeah, yeah, the mm-hmm. guest house is when weird. they go into the guest house. An idealized version, and this even—I don't know if "idealized" is the correct adjective. I'd like to discuss with you, but it, essentially, like an idealized version of their spouse is waiting in that guest house. Um, and so, Mark—it's Mark Duplass and Elizabeth Moss. So, when Elizabeth Moss goes in, there's an idealized version of Mark Duplass's character. And when his character goes in, there's an idealized version of Elizabeth Moss's character. And thankfully, they sort of just accept the premise pretty mm-hmm. early on. Yeah, and they don't try to hide it from each other, which no, is something they I don't, really like. Yeah, they don't try to hide it from each other. It doesn't waste time with them bickering about it too much. Um, they just sort of figure it out. And then over the course of a lunch and a diner, they just sort of decide, you know... Um, we should probably just sort of explore this and see what this is. And this could be interesting. Um, so they sort of explore their relationships with these sort of idealized versions of their spouses. And then other stuff starts to come up, but I don't, I don't think it's, it's probably not fair to judge a movie based on what you expected it to be or wanted it to be. But like, it was disappointing to me that it, it dedicated so much time. Like, it's a... It, you know, uh, Jim, the, the first thing I thought of was certified copy. Ooh, yeah. No, that's a good point. Mm-hmm. I could see that. And, like, just how certified copy is a, is a couple... Or two people who, throughout the course of a day together, their relationship to each other changes. And you're not exactly sure why it's happening or what it means or anything. But you just explore all these different potential lives. They yeah, have. it's like identity um, in flux, and you're sort of watching that right. change. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, so that was sort of what I was expecting was this, is, you know, they're going to be able to say all the things that they're not able to say to their regular partner. They're going to be mm-hmm. exploring things. They're going to... But it really quickly just turns into a story about one of the idealized sort of doppelgangers trying to get out and trying to subvert them. And it kind of goes, it kind of falls into an uncomfortable place where I didn't understand the mechanics of the story at all. Like I didn't understand what, who the doppelgangers were. I didn't understand why they were there. 
Like, he, the therapist is part of it. Yeah, not a lot of it is um, explained outright. It's it's not explained. I mean, in Certified Cop, it's not explained at all, but it also doesn't matter because it's just living in the metaphor. It doesn't, it doesn't necessarily care about the dynamics of it. It never attempts to address it. Where this kind of goes there, but doesn't explain anything. Yeah. It was a really unsatisfying middle ground for me. Yeah. But um, I wanted to talk to you about... So do you think there... What do you think the different... So, like, the Elizabeth Moss um, doppelganger is kind of like a, a Stepford Wive, almost. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That, that's something that um, I, I was telling Patrick earlier that um, I went out and I saw this movie because I really like Elizabeth Moss. I think she's an incredible actress. And, yeah, when she's playing the doppelganger, um, I found her performance to be very lacking. Like, I think she's great as Sophie, but when she's yeah, when she's playing the doppelganger, you're right. She's very much like a Stepford wife. But to me, that made sense given the mechanics, where it's like if if she can successfully seduce Ethan, or she can like successfully break up their marriage, then she gets to leave. Okay, so. yeah. So I so it's revealed huh. at the end yeah. that the the doppelgangers have to make the real couples break up, and then the doppelgangers are free. And basically, that this uh, retreat is sort of their prison until they can make. Whoever next comes, I don't understand how they change where they look. Like, does that mean that if 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 that plan went through and the doppelgangers made Sophie and Ethan break up, uh-huh. and the doppelgangers went free, and then Sophie and Ethan, Sophie and Ethan were stuck in the retreat, I, I guess how would they then be the doppelgangers for the next couple to come? I, I guess they just turn into them because there's that there's that scene where, where he finds all those like files, mm-hmm. and stuff. right? And and it's kind of suggested that they're being morphed into the the next couple, just somehow. Yeah. So why would the therapist? Do, what is the ultimate plan for the therapist to do this? Uh, because he's Ted Danson, and Ted Danson is the ultimate evil. I don't. I don't know. That yeah. was the part that. No, was I like, mean the way things uh, sort of play out towards the end was a little confusing, but I didn't necessarily find that to be a bad thing. I it's it's a conundrum of a movie that I actually really 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 responded to. I don't Yeah, me too. I think too. it's just the just the idea of, you know, if you could fix your partner's problems real and perceived like are and are these projections of what they're hoping, you know, the ideal version well, of their partner could be. I don't I don't think be. so cuz because Mark Duplass's initial reaction to seeing the Stepford Weiss version of Elizabeth Moss is just to be really creeped out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, he, yeah. he is not like, all right, bacon for breakfast, my kind of life. <laughs> like, his initial reaction is like, all right, something's really wrong here. This is weirding me out. I don't like this at all. Whereas Elizabeth Moss just sort of retreats into the fantasy. Yeah, I... Mm. I, I mean, that's something that I was thinking about because, I'll, I, I mean, I've been thinking about this movie quite a bit since I saw it. And what's really been on my mind is, um, like, am I rooting for these characters? And if I am, why? And if I'm not, why not? Because I don't, I, I mean, I mean, you're, yeah, Elizabeth Moss, like, like Sophie, like, like buys into it 100%. And she's like, you know, almost from the get go, you know, seduced by uh, doppelganger Ethan. But I, I don't know. Something about me didn't really like blame her or hate her for that, or, or like I didn't. I didn't see. I didn't see her as an antagonist to Ethan. I didn't. Oh yeah, see no. Them... I, I don't think the movie structured like that, where she's the antagonist. Yeah. But the movie, it was. It uh, so okay. So actually, this is go back to concussion. This is part of the reason. Like, 
I just wish more movies, like it was just a 50-50 toss-up or, you know, it was just equal uh, probability whether a movie would be about straight characters or gay characters or Mm -hmm. whatever, you know, like, because a lot of this movie I was stuck thinking, like, is the director trying to say something about men and women or are these two characters just sort of stand on their own regardless of their gender? And I, cause the Stepford, yeah. cause at first when I thought, when you don't know that these doppelgangers are full humans, you th- I assumed initially that they were just projections. Right. Um, I thought mm-hmm. like, okay, so he's saying that men desire Stepford wives and women desire, uh, handsome, athletic, uh, funny guys. I mean, he is kind of a Stepford husband. It's just that you don't really see that too often. You know what I mean? Like, like, like you, like you don't. I, I mean, in in both instances, they're Stepford husband, in which they're just designed to be the perfect. Right. But as far as when I say Stepford wife, I just mean like completely subservient. Right. Where she's just like making. We're like literally Elizabeth Moss. Elizabeth Moss's doppelganger, Sophie's doppelganger. She's not emotionally attentive. The first time he's with her and she's like making him bacon and he's freaking out, she just doesn't respond to him. Right. She's not being emotionally attentive at all, and that's me uh-huh. is fundamentally different. Than uh, the Mark Duplass doppelganger. Well, to me, that that kind of read as Mark Duplass doppelganger just being better at manipulating people because there's that scene, and and Hmm. the the reason that I think that um, that Sophie buys into falling in love with Ethan doppelganger more is because. Um, she hasn't forgiven Ethan for cheating on her. Uh-huh. So she has like a deeper desire to have an idealized Ethan, the Ethan who didn't cheat on her. That's why I think she's more like vulnerable mm. to the the trap of the retreat, if you will. Okay, so then the other thing that happens in this movie that no character ever comments is that she cheats on him. Right. And no one reference, no one says that she cheated on him. When that is brought up and brought to light, it is framed as... Ethan betrayed her. So, okay, so what happens is Ethan, uh, they, okay, so after the dinner in which they decide, all right, we're going to stick around, we're going to see what this happens, they have this conversation, they lay out ground rules, Mm -hmm. and they're like, okay, so you can't be affectionate. Right. Um, The way way they figure out in the first place is that Elizabeth Moss has sex with the doppelganger not knowing it's doppelganger, and he doesn't really seem to hold that against her. He just goes, you know, he says, I have feelings about that, here are my feelings about that, Mm -hmm. but he doesn't. The real Ethan doesn't really push that on her. He's just sort of like... Right. So anyway, we shouldn't do that anymore. Right. So they set up an agreement for their relationship. And and it's like, all right, no no intimacy, um, you know, 15 minutes. And then immediately she's getting a massage from doppelganger Ethan and is in there too long. And like... Right. And she's immediately breaking it. And yet every time anyone's talking about it, it's it's like framed as real Ethan's fault. Like hmm. when, cause that, so, okay. So he becomes suspicious yeah, and basically he sneaks into the guest house right before she opens the door and pretends to be doppelganger Ethan. And right, right. she has sex with her husband thinking it's, thinking it's the doppelganger. I, I, I kind of felt like that was constructed as like the directors assuming that the audience would be more sympathetic to Ethan because you spent, I feel like you spend a lot more time with him being outside the guest house and him like worrying and wondering what's going on. And so, I mean, you know, I I guess to me, what the story that's being told is the story 
of the power dynamics between these doppelgangers and the real couple and mm-hmm. how they're manipulating each other, how the doppelgangers are manipulating each other, how the doppelgangers are manipulating the real couple mm-hmm. and everything. And to me, that's just like you have this fantastic premise to explore any number of things that are super relatable. And then the actual thing that's being explored is very abstract to me, which is which is it's, like I've never been in a relationship in which my doppelganger seduces her and then we have ground rule. And then it's like like to me, <laughs> it, it takes it so far away from relatability and it's it, it just feels like the wrong approach. And again, that's a bullshit way to approach a movie is like, well, they didn't do what I would have done. So they did it wrong. Like that's bullshit. But that's just kind of how I felt. It focuses I, I just, on the characters quite you know, uh, explicitly rather than like trying to comment overtly on, you know, male female relationships. And it, it's just weird. Um, like, I mean, <laughs> it's I, a I weird mean, movie. It's, it's just weird. <laughs> it's just weird, but I still loved it. And I, I think it, it's coming off of a very interesting year for me with these weird doppelganger movies commenting yeah. on yeah. identity and like enemy, uh, coherence. Uh, there's a lot of movies that are really. Like they work more on an intellectual level than an emotional one for me, but that's that's fine. Like every now and then, when I watch a movie that does that, I'm engaged by it and I'm satisfied by the end. I realize I'm always the negative one, and I do want to say like this is a really interesting movie, and I was really engaged the whole time. I enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, I was just I I feel like I wanted to talk to you guys about this and to talk into detail and to go into spoilers and stuff because I wanted to see. Because I I've just seen this. I finished it three hours ago, so yeah. And I saw it like uh, maybe like the weekend before last. And, so like, it's probably I, a movie that's been like in my mind. Yeah, though. that I uh, that would grow. So and I need to see it again. I really do. Yeah, I I I think the reason that like I've been thinking about it so much is not only like am I I'm still trying to piece out my reactions to what the characters do, but I I just kind of I just feel like the. I just feel like the situation is in some way relatable. I just can't quite put my finger on it. And I feel like it is sort of a metaphor for how relationships actually work. I'm just Hmm. still like trying to figure out what it is because there's one part where um, they're trying to uh, sort of put into words what makes their doppelgangers different from them. And I think Sophie says something like – He's you when we were first dating or something like that. Yeah. It, it was some line like that mm. that really stuck with me. And then there's the scene yeah, where um, she where they don't really know like like what the mechanic of um, the guest house is yet. And she asks doppelganger Ethan, why did you cheat on me? And the answer that he gives her is just the most like it generic kind of if they made a greeting card yeah. for sorry I fucked someone else yeah, like really, what he said would be in the greeting card but like she completely buys into it you know so um, I, I don't know I don't know I, maybe maybe it's like it, maybe it's saying something about how um, like like the tendency in a relationship to expect or focus on the idealized version of your partner that you thought that you, you know that you saw when you first started dating mm, and then yeah. you know sort of being together and you know going through things together and just reality kind of takes that away from you from you and just wanting to kind of step back into that that dream sure. of new relationship energy at, well, she at the just cost. Says, yeah. she just says flat out towards the end like oh well, I'm not I like that leave. interpretation yeah. I, I but it's again like much like enemy the ending of this movie did leave me wondering what the overall thesis was like, yeah. like just the fir- like the like the last few minutes is like what is that 
trying to what? Mm. Okay, so it, so it's it's hard to set up the end. And I'm I'll, I like again, we set up all the spoilers. So here's another spoiler alert. If you literally want to know everything about it except the five minutes, go ahead and skip <laughs> forward. So basically, what happens is all of the doppelgangers and and the doppelgangers and the real couple they're all together towards the end and. The doppelganger Ethan is desperate to escape, and he tries to escape, and he's unable to because he's not strong enough. And again, it's the the mechanics of this. It, I don't want everything super explained out, and I certainly don't want logical explanations for it. Uh huh. But I just feel like so much legwork is are is put into the movie as far as making like if if they were real people, if the doppelgangers were just projections. That would just be more interesting to me because then suddenly you don't have to think about, wait, so what is their motivation? Wait, what? Mm-hmm. Like, it just – it becomes a different kind of movie. Yeah. It becomes more of a thriller almost as opposed to an exploration of relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, Doppelganger Ethan tries to escape. He's unable to. So – and then at this point, um, Elizabeth Moss sort of realizes the error of her ways um, and her and her husband, real Ethan um, – they yeah it's at a certain point during the movie they change their names to real Ethan and real Sophie so <laughs> so they can always look at each other's driver's license and know for sure um <laughs> uh red x red x that's my favorite line from uh, Rick and Morty uh <laughs> do you remember that episode no with all the Ricks and the Mortys and it's like all right look we're looking for another pair of Rick and Mortys we're going to draw red x's on our faces so if it ever comes down to a point where you're pointing at both of us you know that we're the real ones <laughs> And then, and, then that, that? and that completely backfires anyway. And he's just, Red X! I just explained this to you! <laughs> anyway, so real Ethan and real Sophie leave. And and then it, they seem to be better together. And they're having a wonderful little morning moment where they're cuddling in bed and stuff. And she offers to make him breakfast. And then, dun, dun, dun. She makes bacon! She makes bacon, which is the sign. Because Sophie doesn't want Ethan eating bacon. But uh, Stepford wife Sophie loves to make bacon for yeah. her. For her husband. And so – and then – so to me, the the ending is – it's not that the big twist that he picked the wrong one because he had – they were dressed That's in That's what I thought for a second scene. there. Well, I, well no. I, he did pick oh, the wrong well. one. I think he did. But I don't think that's supposed to be the big takeaway. I think the big takeaway is that he asks what's for dinner – what's for breakfast and she says eggs and bacon and he has – a solid sort of five count or ten count where he realizes what he's done. Hmm. And then he goes, okay. And then yeah. it comes down. Yeah. He doesn't freak out. And, you know, like, so the implication is he's just as willing to embrace the fantasy as, as, as real Sophie was, but he just did it. He just <laughs> wouldn't admit it to her. Wow. Okay. Like, I think it's more just he was in denial about, like, he's the one who's going to get to the bottom of everything. He wants to know what's going on. So uh-huh. analytical. And to be yeah. fair, this is another one of those movies where um, the most insane things are happening and the characters don't ask enough direct questions. Mm-hmm. Like, characters who – I felt this way a lot about Ninth Gate where it was just, like, characters who are trying to get to the bottom of something don't ask direct questions to people who they know know what is at the bottom of everything. Right, and so that, that part's that can a little be frustrating. Like, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I guess, but I also feel like they're they're trying so hard to be overly polite to each other in the beginning. So maybe that's kind of why they kind of well towards the end. Like Ethan's not Ethan's not feigning politeness for it. He's just trying well, yeah. not to get his wife to leave him. He doesn't give a shit about the doppelgangers. He doesn't yeah. think they're real people. 
but he won't ask direct questions to them. Mm. Yeah. He doesn't ask, well, who did this to you? Why did therapists do this? When did this start? What was that process like? What? How is that even possible? We don't know of this technology where she can morph into someone else. Yeah, that's true. I don't know. I, I just, I, I found that last, like, 10 count that, mm-hmm. that Mark Duplass has so kind of, like, resonating because what I kind of read into what was going through his mind was, I have to save Sophie. Nah, fuck it. Yeah. You know? Where I, I didn't, I didn't feel like, like once he realized it, it, it didn't feel like an immediate relief. Hmm. I, I just kind of felt like I saw him deciding to give up on his relationship. Yeah, you know, and, and I don't know, just that's kind of been. No, yeah, no, that's how the ending is for me. The fact I don't think it's supposed to be like a. I think even when he was walking away with Sophie, there's that shot where you see both of them as mere images of each other because yeah. they're wearing the exact same outfit. Yeah, and he grabs one, and I think. I think any viewer at this point would suspect that there's at least a chance that he grabbed the wrong one. Oh, yeah, yeah. I don't think it's supposed to be sort of a gut punch that, oh, my God, he's the wrong one. I never saw that coming. I think right. it's, yeah, the the choice he <laughs> it's makes. It's kind of a coin flip. Yeah, it really is. Um, so it's really the choice he makes. So that's sort of how the ending was hmm. for me. I think it's just all a bunch of cosmic craziness. That's all. Yeah. I don't understand most of it, but uh, I I still liked it for what it was, and... I, th- I don't know how I'll feel about it on a rewatch, but I'm excited to do that because uh, part of me was like, uh, I wonder what Charlie Kaufman would have done something like with this premise because it, you know, it tries to comment on just relationship dynamics and, and well, Charlie Charlie Kaufman would number one instantly complicate things in which every time they open the door and go in, a new person was yeah. born. <laughs> so there, eventually there'd be like thirty Sophies and thirty mm-hmm. Ethans. All with their own agenda. I think it's just uh, it falls then, in that category of movies that I really respond to, where it's like just the idea of identity being this fluid thing, where like three women or something mm-hmm. like that. I mean, it's a totally different yeah. sort of dream logic that movie follows, but it's still it doesn't play in the same realm as the one I love. But it just it has ideas that uh, I I gravitated towards, but didn't necessarily like come come away with like okay, this is what this movie is about. And I have this like set in stone analysis of it, um, but I still like really loved it for some reason, and yet I can't interpret it as as to why. And that's kind of how I felt about Enemy too. Well, Enemy, so Enemy to me was just on the one hand you're trying to figure out what's going on, but on the other hand he keeps having these dreams and stuff, and it's just this build yeah. of tension. Um, and I think that build of tension is really cool. And I love the way that, like, this movie, it has an absurd premise, but there's a moment where they just are like, okay, we thought we were doing one thing, but instead we're in an absurd (laughs) premise. And they deal with that, and they have that scene. Whereas Enemy, it just sort of slides into yeah. it. Where yeah. these things go way over his head. and he and But there's never a moment where he's just like, this is crazy, right? This can't actually be happening. Yeah. Like, it just sort of is. And that's what I really responded to in Enemy, because it, it was just, it's just sort of this inevitable, like, he's on this, like, he's on the edge of a mountain. He's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And he's just, like, sliding into this chaos. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. He's very and accepting of the, it and almost. That co- and that corresponds to sort of the build attention throughout the movie. And then that ending, I have no idea what the fuck the ending of Enemy is about. I didn't but, like it. Yeah, I know. You Regina, Regina hated that ending. <laughs> I laughed. And I don't think it's the intended response, but... I, th- I think I said something along the lines of, Jesus Christ! <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I, I was quite startled. 
by the ending of Enemy, which yeah. I won't spoil here. But at any rate, um, like that ending is such a beautiful <laughs> payoff mm-hmm. of tension that the fact that it makes no sense to me is kind of only tangentially important. Um, yeah, you know, I don't think Enemy is a perfect movie, but I do, I do, do, I do just like the tone and the form that enemy has as opposed to this movie. Um, but I, but it, again, the reason I want to talk about it with you guys is because you guys have had more time since you saw it and I've only had three hours and it feels like a movie that once I watch it, knowing what's happening from the beginning, like maybe it will suddenly become about something yeah. different. Like, honestly, one of the things I thought about when she cheats on it, like the interesting thing about their setup is they have that conversation. They're like, okay, let's just try this. Let's just try to have basically relationships with other people. Mm-hmm. And it almost mm-hmm. felt like... Yeah, she says, like, let's look at this as a trust yeah. exercise. Right. And it almost felt like, like, oh, like this movie... And I, I, it still could be. I, again, I don't have a fully... Like you, Jim, I don't have a fully formed opinion of what the one I love definitely is. So I can't fully refute, like, and this is why it doesn't work. It, it more defied my expectations in a way that didn't please me. But um, it almost felt like a, a movie about sort of uh, an open relationship. Mm, I can see that. In that even people who are you know polyamorous in open relationships, they have ground rules and they have things that you can and can't do. Yeah. And like this, just this sort of sets up infidelity not as you know having emotions for someone who isn't your assigned partner. This isn't. Of infidelity as being physical with someone who's signed your partner. This is infidelity as not doing the thing you agreed that, with your right. partner that you would yeah. do. Yeah, that's a good point. And, you know, in so many movies, uh, monogamy is just a given, and infidelity is that infidelity is just, well, that's the worst thing because that's the attack on monogamy and that's the basis of the relationship. Mm-hmm. And th- in this movie, infidelity is sort of has a different tone to it. Yeah. Because. They don't know exactly what they're doing, and there's just a weird energy to it. Um, so I, I I wouldn't be surprised like if I went back and I was sort of felt oh like maybe this movie is about that's uh, what I'm open I'm hoping that I, on a rewatch too I will feel a little differently because I know what I'm in for. Yeah, like something something uh, it, it, this movie turns out to be like something about something that's more specific. Mm-hmm. Um, that I wasn't counting on, and I just couldn't see because I was counting on one thing, and also because I had to pause and play the movie every fucking 90 seconds like <laughs> if this movie turns out to be something like that I, i'll be pleased i'm definitely going to watch this movie again yeah, toward the end of the too. year um but uh i'm just sort of you know i'm talking out my sort of initial thoughts of it which was oh man what a killer premise and then just kind of being disappointed with what it did with the premise but um i still would recommend people see it it's really good yeah for sure um it's going to be an interesting end of year discussion with a lot of movies that are I would consider to be intellectual exercises. Um, that that yeah. um, I'm not sure how I feel about because I mean there are times when the emotional response trumps everything else for for me especially and this movie like worked um, more intellectually and I'm still at a loss as to like okay this is exactly why it works and this is exactly what I took away from it. Um, but in the moment, again, it was almost like with Resolution where it was kind of like, I am not bored, I'm fascinated, I'm compelled by what's going on. 
So oh yeah, it works. It's the kind of imag- it's a kind of imaginative movie that you always just are yeah. excited to see. Yeah, and also like I found the characters super charming. Like I would totally hang out with oh, yeah. those people. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, no, they're they're good characters. Both the both the performances are really good and uh, distinct. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Oh yeah. Um, especially Mark Duplass, who I'm I'm normally not kind of uh, a big fan of. He's sort of I don't know. He's a fine every guy, but he does. He's never really changes. He never really moderates that sort of just everyman ch- uh, tone. Mm-hmm. Um, I've never been a big fan of him as an actor, but uh, in this playing two distinct characters, or at least two characters that become distinct as the movie goes on. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, this I, was I this was his best job. performance by far. Mm-hmm. Wow, a lot of good stuff to talk about. Oh boy, yeah. yeah. For sure. Oh, one other thing. It's uh, it's becoming. It's getting to October, so I want to tell everybody to uh, read Books of Blood. Oh my god, I've not read that since I was like fifteen. I just reread it over the past like week or so, or I reread most of the short oh. stories. Um, it's so fucking good. <laughs> you want to talk about imaginative? Every single like, not every single story in Books of Blood, and I think. I think the way you buy Books of Blood now is just volumes one, two, and three. So. I'm not exactly sure of. I I don't know if those were released like within a year of each other or at the same time or if they were always one book. But anyway, you get the Books of Blood volumes one through three, um, and his prose is just fucking beautiful. And it's it, it it's sort of he kind of feels like the most literate crypt keeper ever. Like, like <laughs> it's very consciously kind of spinning this tale for you. Mm-hmm. Um, so even when it's just like, you know, one of the, one of the stories in uh, books of blood is Rawhead Rex. And that's pretty much just mm-hmm. a monster. Movie. And it was made, it was made like, into a really, really bad monster movie. Yeah. I can, uh, with that. Well, that's, that's what I'm saying is like without, without Clyde Barker's prose, I can't imagine what the appeal of that movie would be at all. It's just literally, a monster is resurrected after hundreds of years and he goes on a rampage and then he's defeated. Like there's really no thematic, um, into the, in the essential like plot, there's no real, uh, interesting themes being explored, but the way he writes it, Oh my God, it's delightful. It's the most delightful monster story you've ever read. It's so great. And it's so weird. (laughs) And all of those stories are so good. And if you've never read, you know, if you just think of Clyde Barker as, you know the the guy who wrote uh, Hellbound Heart and who directed Hellraiser and stuff like. Really, like these are they're phenomenal short stories. I'm I've I haven't really followed much of his later career. He sort of went away from straight up horror and he kind of went more into a mm-hmm. dark fantasy mode, which yeah. I'm less interested in. I mean these these are horror stories that sort of are in the realm of dark fantasy. Like they certainly uh, there's a lot of magical realism going on and. And stuff. It's not like um, I don't know. Stephen King always takes much more pains to sort of establish the credibility of his world before something you know before the thing that destabilizes it sort of enters. You know, he'll he'll spend mm-hmm. so much time with here's the town, here are all the people, and here's mm-hmm. the relationships, and then the thing happens, and then it's about how this thing affects the town. Whereas Clive Barker, you're never really on. Yeah, the I went through it. a mad Clive Barker phase um, in high school and read a lot of his stuff my memory isn't too clear on them i just i was like so into his 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 style of writing and i was you know obviously a huge fan of hellraiser but pretty much everything else i remember like younger 
I saw Nightbreed and thought it was great. I saw Lord of Illusions and thought it was great. And then when we we rewatched the director's cut of Nightbreed, I'm like, oh my god, what was I thinking? I mean, maybe the maybe the the yeah. book is good, but well, the the crazy thing about so the, the, so the crazy thing is, so like one of Clive Barker's biggest pleasures uh-huh. is describing monsters in his because it's never just a vampire, it's never so just specific. a sea monster. It is. It's. Oh yeah. It's always. You're right. It's so specific and it's so weird. It's always just like a thing that has six arms that are kind of in a spiral. And yeah. The arms, the teeth, and that's his mouth. His mouth has hands on it, and like, and like one of the stories. Um, I, f- I forget the name of the story, but it's about like these these monsters that live in the desert and what? Uh, I don't know. Mm. <laughs> Regina's laughing right now. <laughs> I'm sorry to interrupt your flow. I really didn't. <laughs> what? What's no, I, I'm just sitting here because, like, it's like, oh, I just read Stephen King in high school. He wrote a book about Carrie. She's a high school girl, and she's had too much. <laughs> no spiral arm monsters there. No, I mean, no, I like Stephen King a lot, but I'm, I, I don't mean to use Clive Barker as like, and this is what Stephen King gets wrong. I'm just saying, <laughs> I'm just saying, is it because Stephen King? I imagine everyone has read at least a couple novels. Oh yeah, and whereas Clive Barker. You know, and also they're short stories, so they just never wear out their welcome. Mm-hmm. Um, they're they just tell good stories, but yeah, like the one of the stories where it takes place in New Mexico, it's just fucking a parade of the craziest monsters, and each one, none of their anatomy lines up to the other. And so you go to Nightbreed, and that was like, all right, this yeah. is gonna be the film version of that, where he goes to Monster City and he sees all the monsters, but there's no like. It felt I mean, anesthetized. Grant, I'm like, saying for I, me. I don't know. There's something about that movie. Well, you just you, with, in a pre CGI world and in, in a Hollywood world, you're not going to get the kind of grotesqueries that Clive Barker describes and implies. Yeah, where it's just going to be a bunch of prosthetics and a bunch of guys in rubber makeup and stuff. And there are people who love prosthetics and rubber makeup. There are the you know the Rick Bakers of the world and the people who, the KNBs of the world. They watch Nightbreed and they're like, <laughs> oh my god, it has all the monsters. It's all monsters. It's so great. But like, it, no, it, it, pa- it pales in comparison to s- of to something like Clive uh, Barker's kind of Pan's Labyrinth yeah. or whatever. Like the that's that's the thing that I remember from Pan's Labyrinth is like just some of the creatures she would encounter, like the guy with the eyeballs, and that was very Clive Barker. Yeah. Pan's, Pan's Labyrinth, yeah, that, that's true. Pan's Labyrinth is more of a good, but again, it, even crazier and more grotesque oh, and sexual. That's the other thing about every story has some sexual element that is, it, it, there, it is the kinkiest collection of horror stories you've read, like, maybe ever. I mean, other than... Does that Books of Blood have a, a story about a woman stories. who can there kill are, people there, with her mind or, or kill men with her mind? It has a story about a woman uh, who has complete control over bodies. And she can change uh-huh. the shapes of bodies, including her own and men. And so, like, for example, early in the book, this is the story I was... I want oh, to read. yeah. Totally like, read oh, that. Regina needs to read this. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, early in the book... Early... Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, go on. <laughs> yeah, you're mad like that. Um, like early in the book, like there's a therapist being very condescending to her, and she's like, "She, he doesn't know what it's like to be a woman. He's not a fucking woman. He's uh-huh. not a woman. I'll make him a fucking woman." And then like he just like his just his anatomy sprouts like breast and like just a crevice appears between his legs, oh, but it's boy. very crude. So it's like 
the most violent version <laughs> of a of a of a uh, gender bending sort of a moment, and it hmm. kills him, of course, because his body's not prepared to take it. Mm-hmm. Oh, so she, man. yeah, exactly. So she kills people by sort of just that like stretching out their bodies mm-hmm. in crazy ways, and and he's he's one of the most charming yeah. guests on Love Line that I've ever heard. <laughs> he's so easygoing, and he's almost like David Lynch, oh, yeah? he's like Jimmy Stewart, like. He's, you wouldn't think you wouldn't think he writes this kind of stuff. <laughs> oh man! Well, I, I, he, he'd yeah. be right at home at Love Line. Nothing would phase him. Well, and that's the other. He he is just like as a gay man. It's uh, this is the gay episode. Uh, as Hooray! a gay, yeah. Hey, it's Bisexual Awareness Week, so it it's works. Bisexual Awareness Week. Happy Bisexual Awareness Week, everybody. <laughs> we just shared a hearty handshake. Yeah, we we did a hearty handshake into the mic. Um, <laughs> Uh, but, uh, like, it, it is cool just to, again, to have, oh, man, do you remember the, Jim, you remember the stories in the hills, the cities, where the, they're, it's the two gay men, and they're in, um, like, the Soviet Union, and the cities, and the towns are collecting oh, all their populations yeah. to make giant people. Oh, my God, I haven't thought of that in a long time. Oh, that's right, you told me. Oh. <laughs> yeah, like, it's, uh-huh. it's a fucking crazy story, and it's. And he's able to, and you know, he just will have a story like that. And the two leads are gay, and it's not a story about being gay or whatever. It's just that's it's just incidental. It's a story about their relationship, certainly, but like, oh, it's so good. So, if you haven't read Books of Blood, I just read Books of Blood, and then throughout the rest of October, I'm just going to be reading uh, something wicked this way comes. I should. Re- I remember that movie Garland freaked Poe. me out when I was a kid. Um, probably just because, probably because of the spiders. I haven't what, seen something- it in forever though. I, I've never seen the movie. I've only read the book, but I adore the book. The, mm-hmm. Ray Bradbury, the way he writes, is also just like, ugh. He captures that perfect sort of creepy, like, what, I, I'm, I'm a fucking dork when it comes to Halloween in October, and I just get so excited. Like, I just turn into a fucking five-year-old boy. Like, you know, like, there's that documentary about the dads who, like, build, who make oh, their houses yeah. into little haunted houses and stuff, and, like, yeah, I'm just a dork like that. Like, I, I don't have the the finances to do something like that, but I'm a fucking dork and I get so excited about that feeling. And that feeling to me is that sort of, um, you know, the scenes in Halloween where you just see in the distance kids walking around in like kind of shitty 1970s Halloween costumes and they're just walking around unsupervised and it's nighttime and they're getting candy from strangers and they're just, and because it's the seventies, there's no fucking, uh, Tricker Park, where they're just going around the church parking lot to different people's cars. They're like, or the just, mall. Yeah, like, like, remember when we would go trick or treat? Remember when we go trick or treat? Kids these days wear oh my goddamn God, helmets. Sanford and Sanford. Uh, but, but like, I remember like, when, yeah, exactly. But you would go trick or treat again. You just go like way the like. You just walk in a direction. Oh yeah. You just be like, oh, there's houses that way. I'll keep walking. Like, what is that way? Have you ever been? There? I did that no, in Cabrini Green though. once, and. Uh... and <laughs> <laughs> oh my really? god, you did not. And, yes, of course. <laughs> You're, that was a Candyman <laughs> reference, right? Okay. Oh. <laughs> that took me a bit, sorry. But anyway, so like that vibe of that sort of wholesome Americana, but kind of spooky, but kind of fun, yeah. and just like that, like a 12 year old boy. Like, okay, like mm-hmm. you remember like the beginning of Phantasm? Where he's riding around his bike and he's like looking at the graveyard and seeing these creepy things and stuff. Like that kind of vibe to me. Yeah. Nothing captures that vibe better than Ray Bradbury uh, and, and Phantasm wrote, does uh, too. Something really wicked well. this way comes. Yeah, Phantasm does oh, it really well. Yeah. Um. So anyway, those are some book recommendations. On I like that we're going from Clive October. Barker to <laughs> to Wes Anderson. 
Wes Anderson, the Clive oh. Barker of cinema. <laughs> With his grotesque uh, 1960s bow ties. Shit. Yeah, his, his grotesque bow ties and fanceries. Monocle of terror. <laughs> Whoa, there's a long pause. <laughs> I would love Wes Anderson. You know, Wes Anderson's tackled so many influences and so many genres. I'd oh my god. Well, that's what movie. Saturday Night Live did a funnier die or That'd whatever or maybe it was just a that was uh just a parody oh uh, well yeah a couple a couple places did like oh i <laughs> we're, we're gonna yeah we're talking about wes anderson we'll, we'll go into it but like i hate just the most baseline level of like the way people internalize wes anderson uh-huh. is just like oh people say things and then they pause for five seconds and everything is symmetrical and someone is dressed fancy and like that's the limit like I thought the Wes Anderson I didn't porn see that one either. was kind of cute. I didn't see that. Oh no, that's right. I remember that one. That was that was all it's right. A, it's on YouTube. I mean, it's just like random. There's a couple Wes Anderson parodies that are that are okay. That yeah. Wes Anderson Spider Man one had some really good moments. Too, <laughs> I didn't see that. Where Owen Wilson plays uh, uh, Jonah Jameson, and it's like we're all excited about your work. And it's like <laughs> you haven't seen my work, and then the camera pans back to Jonah Jameson. It's heard great things, and, <laughs> and he goes to event. Yeah, it's so. There's some good West Anderson parodies, but like most of the time, it they just sort of don't get the thing that the heart that ticks in the center of it. Mm-hmm. And also, they're weirdly not specific. When the thing that defines Wes Anderson to me is just how specific everything has to be, and mm-hmm. you know, it's not just an elevator in Grand Budapest Hotel; it's the funicular. <laughs> you know, right. so like, so yeah, so like the the. No, let's go ahead and um, let's 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 talk about Wes Anderson. Vim Vendors. No, Wes oh. Anderson. Oh. <laughs> go to jail. Oh. Wes Anderson. Wes Anderson. He makes movies. Wes Anderson. Did I say he's damn good? Bottle Rocket, his debut film, critically acclaimed. He did Rushmore, went on to be an all-time classic. Royal Tenenbaums makes me cry, Moonrise Kingdom, and I like Life Aquatic. Wes Anderson, he makes movies. Wes Anderson, and I say he's damn good. It's Sun, 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 Wes Anderson. So I love the last three movies. Wes, I think Wes Anderson is just on on point. Yeah. I am. I. I have. I have no my uh, my confidence and my enthusiasm for his movies has not flagged at all. It's only increased over the last three movies he's made. Being I would Grand Budapest Moonrise and Fantastic Mr. Fox. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Totally. So, I, but Jim, you you kind of do you want him to sort of go somewhere different? His next film. Uh, I, it's hard to say. Like I. I thought Grand Budapest was like a nice culmination of all of his strengths, and like you mentioned before, the fact that he went into the animation realm with um, Fantastic Mr. Fox seemed to reinvigorate that style. It seemed to bring it back to life when it felt a little stale in Darjeeling Limited, which is 
probably the only movie of his that I'm kind of cold on. I still like it, but I don't, I don't, I don't really get an emotional response to it. Yeah. There's things about it I, I enjoy, but that's where I felt like, you know, his style left something to be desired. And then Fantastic Mr. Fox came along, um, which we saw together, and oh, yeah. it was a, it was a, a gay old time. Oh, but I then, was super skeptical. But I was then, like, but but then on the car ride home, you revealed to me you didn't like Royal Tenenbaums, and I thought I was going to strangle you. So um, <laughs> that's that's not strictly true, Jim. Okay, it's not that I don't like Royal Tenenbaums. It's that compared to the sort of assumed masterpiece status that everyone has, whether or not they're cinephiles or what, just everyone just accepts like, oh yeah, Royal Tenenbaums one of the great. Every person in college wants to talk to you about Royal Tenenbaums. <laughs> <laughs> that's the that's the one indie movie that they've all seen that's really good. It's like an Eternal uh, Sunshine or something. Right. Yeah. There's yeah, yeah, there's Royal Tenenbaums and Eternal Sunshine and I'm sure there's other seminal ones I can't name at the moment. But like mm-hmm. and I don't think it's nearly as good as Rushmore. I don't think it's as good as Life Aquatic. I don't think it's nearly as good as his last three movies. So, I mean, I but I think it's good. Like I think it's beautiful. Like it has the opening is oh. incredible. It has great music. I just think the script is bad. That's hard for me to critique. <laughs> what a shocker! Based on a v- extremely personal reaction to that movie. Sure. I mean, I saw that three months after my father passed, and just like hearing Ben Stiller say to Gene Hackman, who in some ways resembles my dad, like it was just very surreal to hear him say, "I've had a rough year, Dad," mm-hmm. and like just everything that followed from that point on, I was like a mess. But and I, I will say, like, um, I don't understand why um, Richie falls in love with Margot. That's something that I think you might have brought up in your review that I'm actually on board with. But I'm still, like, very forgiving because I think, like, each character represents something that maybe I've felt or gone through. Like, um, just, there's just, I know it's a really just sort of depressing experience to watch these characters engage with one another, but um, there's just like everything about it the music cues, just the, I don't know, there's, and it's one of the more quotable ones. It's, there's just something about Royal Tenenbaums that really holds up for me upon many, many rewatches over time. But we can talk about him as a whole, too. We, so <laughs> we can go ahead and reverse and, uh, or we, Backtrack. Uh, what was the first movie, uh, Wes Anderson movie, we all saw? The first one. Oh, 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 you mean the first one that I saw, not first chronologically. Yeah. The first one that I saw was Rushmore. Same. Um, yeah. Same. I, oh, okay. Cool. Cool. Um, I I wasn't like specifically uh, like, like like I didn't hear about it from like a cinephile kind of way. I remember um, this was like right when it came out. How old um, were you? I was 13, 14. Okay. Um, and I read about it in an article on, like, uh, it was like a, like a, this was like pre-blogs, um, but there was, um, in sort of like, like the late Riot Girl movement, there was a lot of, like, websites that were basically proto-blogs, and someone had written about it as um, sort of an article on, like, um, moving towards a culture of, like, geeks being sexy. And it just sounded really interesting. So, like, the minute it was at my video rental store, I rented it, and it just, it blew my mind. I mean, like, like Jim, you're talking about, you know, My Private Idaho is, like, your first, like, formative art movie experience. Mm-hmm. Rushmore was that for me. And it also sparked a gigantic crush on Jason Schwartzman, which lingers to this very day. Yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> you told me. You told me that. Well, what was the tweet you made? It's like your your crush on Max Fisher has not subs- has not subsided. It's, it's just, just gotten creepy. creepy. Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> like what, what, when I'm like thirteen, fourteen, and I'm crushing on Max Fisher, like it's adorable. I'm thirty yeah. now. It's more appropriate to him, maybe, but I feel weird about it. Uh yeah, um, Jim. What was your experience yeah. watching uh, Rushmore? Did you see it in theaters? Yeah, I did actually because um, I remember this was one of the first times because Nick DeGilio had his uh, own uh, radio show for the first time after being on just as a film critic. He um, had me call in with my top 10 list of 1998, and this was towards the end of the year, and I think I even had Truman Show at number one, but then he had mentioned both A Simple Plan and Rushmore, which hadn't opened up in the suburbs yet. They just played in the city, and I hadn't seen them yet. And he said, when you see Rushmore, you're going to fucking lose your mind. Well, he didn't say fucking on the radio, but <laughs> he told me that I was just going to be blown away by it. And I I didn't know anything about Wes Anderson, and I walked into Rushmore, and I didn't really realize it upon first viewing that it would go on to become one of my all-time favorites. I was obviously drawn in by its energy and its sense of humor. Um, you know, just these fully dimensional characters in a world that just felt... Uh, really assured like it was just created by this director that had a vision all his own Mm -hmm. Uh, and i mean you can a lot of people cite his influence like french new wave and the graduate and harold and maude and but even after maybe it's just like rewatching after hours again sort of informed a little bit like i i just sensed a scorsese level of um energy to the edits um, that Wes Anderson has, just like you know, the camera's always kind of moving for the most part, following somebody. There's these fast zooms and graceful tracking shots. Um, so yeah, I mean, like seeing Rushmore um, at a young age and sort of like you know, because I was a musician, I was just like taken with his use of music so heavily in that movie. Like there's songs now, both with Royal Tenenbaums and Rushmore, that when I hear them, I my instant thought is a scene from a Wes Anderson movie. And I think that's much like Paul Thomas Anderson. Um, when a director can do that for me, just sort of, you know, take my two biggest loves in the entire world, music and film, and sort of shape them into something that I never would have expected, that deserves praise all on its own. But um, I, 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 to this day, every time I watch Rushmore, I fall in love with it more and more. And um, I, I still think it's... You know, as much as like Bill Murray has had this, you know, sort of renaissance period afterwards, I still think it's my favorite Bill Murray performance. Oh honestly. my god, I agree. Uh, well, uh, Ghostbusters, but like, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. But po- like, post uh, like eighties Bill Murray, then yeah, definitely Rushmore. Yeah, and and there and there, I mean, I think like looking at him in Ghostbusters and looking at him in Rushmore, like like those are like the two sides of Bill Murray. You know. Yeah. Um, there's like like that connecting tissue, but I mean, yeah, and, and I would agree. I think Rushmore is one of his better performances, where he is, you know, sort of being, um, you know, like like sad sack down on his luck, Bill Murray. But there's like a a tenderness and a vulnerability and an openness, yes. and also a mischievousness. Yeah, <laughs> that would that really struck me uh, watching it most recently is as how childish uh, Bloom is. Yeah. Um, <laughs> like not just not just like uh running over the bike but 
But just like in the middle of this phone conversation, he's like, I don't know, Max. She did, I don't see what's so special. He just runs and just stuffs these kids playing basketball. <laughs> like, <laughs> or like hiding behind a tree and yeah. like, yeah, creepy peeping yeah. on this cross. Yeah. Yeah. One of my uh, most vivid memories of watching this movie, because it was one of the last movies I got to watch with my dad, was, and him and I, obviously, huge Bill Murray fans, and him seeing this movie. Like, I don't think he loved it quite as much as I did. And even when I first saw it, I didn't love it the ways I do now. But he was like so, he was like laughing and just sort of cringing too at the same time. And I just remember like that scene where he's in the elevator at the hospital, like him chain smoking and just him saying, you know, she's fucked up, right? And just like <laughs> hiding the beer can and like the linens. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, that is something I never had expected from Bill Murray before, just like this weird amalgam of pathos and his usual sort of comic approach. And I think that's what really sold me too on the movie. As much as I love Jason Schwartzman, having grown up as a Bill Murray fan and seeing him in this different light, just from the way he's presented as, you know, this sort of detached um, misanthrope from the diving board scene and on, I just, I like really, that really struck with me. Or, or or just the uh, the the I bought I paid for the auditorium. The least they can do is hear me out. His little speech yeah. in yeah. school, which mm-hmm. is just find the rich boys, get them in your sights, take them down. Yeah. Like right. Oh man, that is yes. Um, also, like I think that that scene in the elevator is a it's a good example. I think of the chief thing probably of why. Wes Anderson's preciousness and his love of fancy things and everything being ordered and everything, why it's never, ever bothered me. Um, and that's because he fucking loves Bill Murray characters. He loves rudeness. He yeah. loves characters yeah. who are also – he like it's not over – like if you want to take this to the full extreme, the most mannered comedy you could make would be uh, – what was that Hal Hartley comedy? Not Trust, <laughs> the, the comedy. Uh, unbelievable Truth? Yeah, The Unbelievable Truth. Like, Unbelievable Truth is, like, the most mannered, constructed, like, people, uh, you know, uh, I read something where it was some criticism of Wes Anderson, um, where uh, it's it's basically, like, his his characters aren't able to breathe because they're suffocated by this, these, like, mm-hmm. these perfect little sets and, 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 these, um, and these shots he sets up and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But, like, that energy from the blue, from the you know Bill Murray character in this or Bill Murray's character in Life Aquatic um you know there really isn't that uh well I guess there I guess that or that would be Gene Hackman in Royal Tenenbaums but unfortunately he didn't get to do it as much mm-hmm. as well there's like him sneaking the cheeseburgers like it's not like it's not like fine whiskey or a cigar it's like it's a cheeseburger right no know? but no but or but he's also like taking Ben Stiller's kids out for joy rides and right. stuff no like <laughs> yeah. yeah like to a cockpit like no <laughs> that's definitely Gene Hackman's role in that movie, but unfortunately, I just think that—I mean, not to bring it to Royal Tenenbaums yet—but I think that um, is sort of overwhelmed by the Margot Richie story and mm-hmm. by the uh, um, what's Luke Wilson's character? Not Luke. What's Owen Wilson's character's name? Oh, um, Eli. 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 And yeah. Eli's character—I don't, I don't understand what he's doing in that movie at all. But mm-hmm. <laughs> regardless, like, funny. regardless, like, it doesn't bother me in Rushmore. Or, or in any of his movies that these things are mannered and constructed and there's artifice and things are overtly put together because they still have an energy to them. Yeah. yeah. They're they're not choked within an inch of their life. It's not like 
every it's not like a you know like Stanley Kubrick needed everything to be just so but he would flatten out a performance by making someone do it 70 times in a row mm-hmm. to the point yeah. where there's an effectiveness to the way people talk in the Stanley Kubrick movie that is just like they're not connecting mm-hmm. to each other or to the script or whatever it's just it's just sort of as if the script is flowing through that not obviously that's a very broad thing to say about someone who made so many different kinds of movies but in yeah. general in general that's a thing that Stanley Kubrick did that isn't really a problem in West Anderson. At least, I think it's kind of a problem in Royal Tenenbaums. But like in most West Anderson movies, I don't find it to be a problem. It's interesting that you bring that up because um, right th- um, this afternoon I was reading an interview that Wes Anderson did where he was talking about his style as a director, and he said that um, he will have his cast do scenes over and over and over in this kind of rapid fire way. But he said that um, it's a very like collaborative process and what he really values is the way that um that his cast sort of forms friendships and comes together and like how that fuels his movies and that when they're um they're doing that like repetitive um the the repetitive scenes it's like this very creative thing and that they never do it the same way twice so it's just kind of finding like well what delivery works it's not like flattening it out it's like fully exploring it yeah i could see that Mm -hmm. so yeah so like to me, he can he. That's why I. That's why I was so excited with Fantastic Mr. Fox because he's just now he's no longer with Fantastic Mr. Fox, Moonrise Kingdom, and uh, Grand Pluto Best Hotel. Like he'll just have a kid. Like he'll have one of the t- most tender love stories, real uh, like between kids or really anyone. Yeah. In, like Moonrise Kingdom, and in the, in the same movie, he'll have the kid get struck by lightning and then like take off his glasses and, and wipe his face, yeah. and then it's just like, oh, he's a little sooty, like he like he's Tom and Jerry or something, <laughs> right, like. Right. He's just free. Um, he's just freed from reality now. And but as long as he always has that energy, um, you know, Grand Budapest Hotel is all that energy because the main yeah. character Ray Fiennes is just so manic and delightful. Yeah. Um, it's very cartoonish, but I still think it's rooted in humanity, and that's what oh, I yeah. love about yeah. Wes Anderson. I know some people were kind of cold on Grand Budapest, but I, th- I, I, again, just. I fell in love with everything about it because it's Wes Anderson doing what he does so well and effortlessly at times. Like I'm just, and I agree with you in in regards to he plays so well with just his own constructed worlds of whether if it's a hotel or a campsite or you know just like these these things that he probably envisions that these characters belong in. Mm-hmm. And he sort of builds around that. I think that's what's really great about just his set designs in general. Yeah, I I think that um, what you're saying about like the characters belonging that was something I noticed too. Where I feel like um, the movies that really shine and really stand out are the ones that take place in these sort of regimented worlds. You know, mm-hmm. like Moonrise Kingdom, where it's like they have like like the khaki scout coat and like you know the specific way of building a campfire, and um, you know Grand Budapest, where there's like there's the way that you run the hotel, and it's it's like this this very ritualized kind of world that these characters live in. I feel I feel like um, he's he's freed the more structure he has. Yeah. You know, well, because he subverts the structure too. It's yeah. not that he just loves everything to be in his place. He loves the characters who upend it. He, you know, Life Aquatic is a real mess of a movie, but <laughs> but the what you were saying about you know the the bonds that form between cast members and when he the way he does scenes and stuff mm-hmm. like that to me feels like what Life Aquatic is about is just yeah about I could totally how that see that whole ship comes together and 
like they're very specifically like you're this you're this you're this but none of them are quite happy where they are Mm -hmm. and they all are trying to break out of it but he it has something to rail against whereas I don't want to keep going back to Royal Tenenbaums, but just because I find my opinion of that movie to be such an aberration in terms of most people, mm-hmm. like, I I just feel the need to clarify my opinion on that more. Like, mm-hmm. in Royal Tenenbaums, the family sort of acts like that, but it's a lot looser than, like, Fantastic Mr. Fox. Like, all right, this is a heist. You do this, you do this. this point, you have to do this. Right. And... You know, and then the person who gets left out doesn't get to do anything of Fantastic Mr. Fox. Like, that becomes an emotional anchor. Mm-hmm. Like, so it's not even, it's not just about things being regimented and everything being in its place. It's about, well, what happens when everything isn't in its place? Mm-hmm. Um, he's able to work both angles of that really well. He's able to find, like, the joys of, <laughs> like, subservience in Grand Budapest Hotel. And he's able to find, like, the horrors of that. And, like, right. and the joys of owning your own shit and, like, being wealthy. It's really... Yeah, I, 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 and yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't find that as present in like Royal Tenenbaums or uh, Darjeeling Limited. Yeah, where it's just sort of looser. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, I think, I think in Royal Tenenbaums, there's a certain amount of the characters being defined by what makes them so great and what makes them so notable. But yeah, it's not, it's not quite as present. I mean, besides, you know, the beginning of the movie. Where you're seeing like like what made the characters like like, Except, like why the char- like what glory the characters are past. I don't know if that's true because I don't know what being a playwright says about Margot. I don't think Margot has much of a character at all, and I don't know what well, being a bit like. I feel like Ben Stiller's character is defined by his wife's death, not by him being a yeah. businessman. Like yeah, okay. I mean, it's tough to say. Like, I mean, I I will say that like. Margot doesn't have the like the dimensions that some like Royal does or you know Ben Stiller's character does, and I just but at the same time like just I I feel like it's a movie about just depression, like these characters going through this malaise of you know former glory and not really living up to what they thought they were going to be, mm-hmm. and I mean that's that's something that I think people experience in you know their adult life, and I mean. It's tough too because it's so informed by like a, a, an experience of me having to deal with something that I wasn't anticipating and like having ex- expectations for my own life and then them not going the way I wanted it to and then this movie comes out that sort of captures it in a in a weird surreal way. Like mm-hmm. I understand not finding it as um you know Consistent as some of his more recent films, for sure. I I I see like you know even just the Eli character just being thrown in there and Margot not being fully realized. But I think I'm willing to overlook those things just because of my emotional response, but also because I think it's a really funny movie. Like I think everything yeah um, about well, it is I, I mean, funny that, too. I think that might be where me and you dis- just do disagree. Then um, is because I just I don't find it to be that funny. In fact, I find it to be like his least funny movie. I think Darjeeling's probably less funny, but yeah. oh, Darjeeling's yeah. kind of less everything. It's just less inspired. Um, but uh, I really don't find it to be all that funny. Then again, I just I will just say, like, Royal Tenenbaums, like I said, is that movie that everyone wants to talk about, end quote. Yeah. And it could just be, I don't find it funny because 
I've heard every iconic line yeah, a hundred thousand like times. It's like the Big Lebowski at this point or something. Yeah, mm-hmm. but it doesn't have that energy of Big Lebowski, so it doesn't have sure. the joy of watching it. Like Even though Big Lebowski has been overquoted to death, there's such joy in it because of the energy all the actors have. In the, mm-hmm. Whereas Royal Tenenbaums, they'll say an iconic line and they'll pause. You know, it's, it does, <laughs> it's, it's, it's all about sap of energy. And I agree with you, it's a, a film about depression. I just think that... I just think that's a, a you choose to make a film about depression. You're really cutting. You're getting. You're, you're really <laughs> choosing something that's very hard to do because mm-hmm. impression because de, depression is being about sort of like it's just disengaged and depression isn't logical and depression. You know, uh, grief is a reaction to something. That's. I mean, I think Rushmore's movie about grief, and I think Rushmore's great because it you can see where everyone's coming from. It's a reaction to something, but depression is just a thing. It's just yeah. this thing that exists independent of everything else, and mm-hmm. um, it can be, you know, it can get worse from circumstances, it can get better from circumstances, but, like, it's a hard thing to make dramatic. And, you know, like, unless you're really abstracting it out. Like, to me, Pulse, that uh, that horror movie, that's oh, kind yeah. of a movie that feels like it's about depression. I mean, it feels like about a lot mm-hmm. of things. It feels like about, you know, technology deadening humanity and stuff like that, but, like, that movie feels like a movie about depression to me, but that do- but it, the way it does it is in a crazy way where it just comes about it completely backwards. Whereas if you're just making a movie in which you say these characters are depressed, now Royal Tenenbaums is not somewhere, but you run, <laughs> you run the risk of making somewhere. Man, we've run sh- we've mentioned Rob Zombie it's a, it's a, it's and Sophia somewhere Coppola. in this episode. Oh, oh, right, right, right. Yeah. We're just like this is our greatest hits episode all of a sudden. Sure, sure. <laughs> I know I, I, Royal and. All of I don't like Darjeeling Limited that much. I think Darjeeling Limited is a delightful movie. Uh, movie I, that was not a hard movie to watch for me at all. It's oh, really no, not at all. Beautifully yeah. shot, and I think it's pretty funny. I think Royal Tenenbaums is even funnier. And I, yeah, it's just watching it in the context of like his body of work. Right. I mean, I mean, I I'll agree with you where I like Royal Tenenbaums more than you do. Yeah, but. Watching it for the first time in several years, you know, having seen Grand Budapest and Moonrise Kingdom and Fantastic Mr. Fox in that time, yeah, it just doesn't hold up. I mean, it has, like, it has great sentimental value for me, um, mm-hmm. just because it's it's so, like, it's so formative, even if it's, even just in terms of, like, aesthetics and how, oh my God, yeah. and how influential it's been there to kind of look back and remember, like, Oh yeah, this was like the first time I saw something this fancy, you know, <laughs> like, coming from like, that was, that, like my generation's art. Of course, know? of course, Royal Tenenbaums was a huge hit. When it's, at that point, people didn't really know what a Wes Anderson movie was like. Yeah, like, yeah. Rush, mm-hmm. like Rushmore's great, but Rushmore's not nearly as perfectly constructed right. as not I don't, not script wise, but in terms of direction, uh-huh. Rushmore's a lot looser than Royal Tenenbaums, and R- Rushmore's already pretty constructed. But Royal Tenenbaums just hammers it home, and it. It obsesses even more about details. Yeah. Like, you get a little bit of that Rushmore just in all the clubs he has. Like, it's all right, just right. sort of fancy old-timey kind of stuff that he likes to do. Yeah. But, um, but like, but Royal Tenenbaums just doubles down. Like, Royal Tenenbaums kind of just defined an aesthetic. Like, yeah. like when, we, when we did the Richard Lester episode, it was, we were sort of talking about, like, you know, forget his impact on, on feature films. Like, Richard Lester defined what a music video is. Mm-hmm. In, a, in a time before yeah. music videos were what mm-hmm. they were. And he just affected, just in directing Hard Day's Night, he affected the culture more than pretty much any other feature film director. And, like, Wes Anderson, like, the world wouldn't look the same without Royal Tenenbaums. Etsy wouldn't look the same. <laughs> T- 
Tumblr would look the same. Oh, like, yeah. The God. things. I, like to me, I go so much. I don't spend much time on Tumblr, but so much of Tumblr and that sort of that kind of culture that that uh, social network sort of fosters in its largely visual thing mm-hmm. just feels like a Wes Anderson montage. Didn't you reference like Pinterest with Moonrise Kingdom? Oh yeah, yeah, Pin- <laughs> yeah Pinterest too. Pinterest as well. These are all things that are just sort of seem to like. I just feel like Wes Anderson. He didn't invent any of these things. You know, he didn't invent millennials and their obsession with Tumblr or whatever. But, like, it just – it feels like he's a huge tastemaker in this oh, way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like, beyond film. You know, I, there's tons of movies, especially after Royal Tenenbaums, I felt in, like, the early 2000s. There were tons of, like, dysfunctional family indie, economy, indie oh, comedies that yeah. were just insufferable. Yeah, but also, like, like fashion, you know, yeah. like hugely influential. Like, yeah, stuff that has nothing to do with film. And often – and to be fair, like, stuff that I don't have as much interest in. Well, yeah, yeah. But it's certainly worth um, mentioning that just Royal Tenenbaums is so unlike anything else mm-hmm. um, until like Aquatic, you know, <laughs> until right. Right, until Wes Anderson further solidified. It's only in retrospect that you can that I sort of look back and I'm like, now that Wes Anderson has further honed in on what he is that he does, mm-hmm. Royal Tenenbaums feels almost like a misstep. Huh. Meh. I, I, still, I what was that? care to unpack that? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I can't imagine interpreting it as a misstep, but then again, like I mean, it's well, it was the, it's so well, hard for well, me to like separate. Way. It's so look, hard for me to separate where I was seeing that movie and sure. how, like, even watching it today, just you know, I get those feelings flushed right in all over again. When I say it's a misstep, like think about Rushmore. Rushmore is like a very specific story about a small set of characters. Um, and they all sort yeah. of have the same problem, and they all—it's—it's it's, it's all about thematically exploring one thing. Really, it's a much more focused movie. Concise. Royal Tenenbaums. Royal Tenenbaums bites off so much more than Rushmore. Mm-hmm. Royal Tenenbaums is so much more ambitious than Rushmore. I mean, the fact that I don't think it succeeds in all these—you know—is besides the point. Like, it's so much more ambitious, and it's so much sort of messier in that way. And then. After Royal Tenenbaums, it was Life Aquatic. And Life Aquatic's even messier than Royal Tenenbaums. And Life Aquatic also just is sort of going everywhere at once. And Darjeeling Limited kind of feels the same way, where it's it's just these sort of narratives of kind of free-floating misery. Mm-hmm. And it's... and Well, also, the, the, the social interactions that these movies are exploring do just get bigger and messier just because, like, they kind of have to. Like, like a love triangle... Like, like that's messy, but it's only three people, you know. Yeah. It's only like, the, but like uh, a family that is trying to deal with like its baggage and its legacy, and yet move forward, and not everyone wants to move forward in the same way, you know. Yeah, that that is going to be really messy, but I, I mean, I mean, it just inherently has to be. And then, like, I don't know, crazy submarine adventure time. That's <laughs> yeah. the messiest of them all. Yeah, because it has a to be freewheeling. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, I, messy in a good way, I think. I mean, well, I, I'm just saying, when I say misstep, I don't mean it's his worst movie. I'm saying it began the period of Phil, of Wes Anderson that I liked the least. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then once Fantastic Mr. Fox streamlined everything again, um, and it was just sort of about one thing again. It was just a, it, it, it was just about sort of this one storyline, and each scene sort of led to the next. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that sort of to me got him back on track. Well, what's weird yeah. for me is like I don't, th- I I I rewatched Grand Budapest Hotel again, and I I realize I don't think this movie's v- very funny, but I still love it. 
And really? I, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I love. I think it's the funniest fucking movie. Oh my I think God. it's easily his funniest movie. I mean, I, I still think it's charming as fuck, and I love it. But I, uh, hmm, like at the same time, I'm not laughing out loud like I expect to. I mean, there's definitely when Willem Dafoe shows up in the in the monk outfit. <laughs> That's funny. Mm-hmm. Like I, I, I don't know. Just like there's the rhythm and energy is what I respond to a lot throughout his career, and every now and then he just taps into something personal or something that either I can relate to or I can, you know, go back and say, okay, like something like Moonrise Kingdom in particular. Oh yeah. I had that experience with, with young love. And, you know, I think you, at the time when we first saw this movie, you compared it a little bit to, um, last summer. I mean, it's, it's, it's a different movie, but it still captures that period of adolescence where everything is kind of up in the air and you're trying to navigate your feelings. And I think Moonrise Kingdom captures that just as well. Uh, absolutely. I mean, God, last I didn't see last summer since I saw it um, years ago, but I, I, I couldn't say which one does better or worse. Or, but like, yeah, both those movies are so like, if you want to talk about every once in a while, he makes a movie that you respond to emotionally, mm-hmm. like the scene, the scene in which she like pulls out the book, like dealing with your troubled child. Like that was just my that was my uh, growing up was all the time finding books that I knew were about me and not saying anything about it and not like and just sort of internalizing that as just like oh I'm a problem like mm-hmm. like I relate to Moonrise Kingdom so hard and I think and I mean that certainly helps and it's just such a beautiful movie as well the the the, the diffuse kind of golden light in the forest when they're oh. you know trekking or it's just gorgeous yeah and and the music and oh my god and and they're not and they're kids so they're still like they're 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 still romantic like it's so romantic because they're so optimistic yeah there's no there's depression in that movie and you know they're they're kids with problems and they're they're kids who are upset and troubled and stuff but they're not they don't have like depression they're not sapped of energy yeah and it's so and it's invigorating and then i mean once you get to grand pudubest hotel that's just like all energy all the time mm-hmm. yeah that's so like to me grand pudubest hotel is somewhere in between like 39 steps in a marx brothers movie yeah but it's like yeah but they're like they're like these they're they're on the lamb you know yeah. it's it's like this you know romanticized outsider i'm like i was comparing it to bonnie and clyde yeah but or badlands is the one i was thinking yeah, of too yeah yeah that's yeah. right yeah we talked about sure. that um, what was I going to say? Forgot. Um, yeah, but, yeah, but I think, yeah, yeah, the energy, I think, I think, yeah, their, their problems are balanced out by, like, the kid things that they do. Like, like, she brings her fucking kitten and a million cans of cat food with her, and then he's just dorking out about his, you know, scout stuff, and they're putting pebbles in their mouths and trying to, like, keep from getting dehydrated even though they have water like you know it's just these cute kid things which really balances out when they have these um very precocious mature um conversations uh with each other and like the letters that they send and just the beautiful way that they like accept each other's flaws like like where where Susie says that really fucked up thing about how like she's always wanted to be an orphan and Sam just kind of pauses and he says I love you but you don't know what you're talking about and how he just kind of like accepts that like (laughs) yeah she's kind of flaky sometimes but like the way like he doesn't get angry and you know he he kind of he's able to hold his anger and his love at the same time the same way when she she shows him the book he just laughs yeah and then she's like hurt and yeah and he you know he apologizes and 
That feels it's, very real. I, I, yeah. Something the specific. The other fascinating is, thing about, about child romances is that it kind of happens backwards from adults. Where, like, these two, like, when you're an adult, what happens is you go on a date with someone and you do chit-chat and you sort of just figure out, oh, this is what our, my dynamic with this person is. Right. And I like this dynamic or I don't. And if I do like this dynamic, you keep having more dates and you kind of explore that more and it becomes sort of fleshed out. Mm-hmm. And it's and before a real emotional attachment sets in, you kind of just lay the groundwork for the mechanics of the relationship. Like, this is how this works. This is the kinds of things we're going to do. Mm-hmm. These are the kind of things we talk about. This is how we talk about them. These are the things that we relate to and everything. Where they, like... They bonded emotionally instantly. And then mm-hmm. that first, when they're on the land, that's their first date. Yeah. <laughs> like that's, yeah. They're, they're sort of first just like, so anyway, I thought like maybe we, like it's it's almost like, it's almost like a hiking first date where it's like, I don't know. I just thought we could like, you know, walk around a bit. And she's like, yeah, okay. And he's the one who knows what's about hiking. So he's like, anyway, so, you know, we could do this or whatever. And like, it, it, it feels like a first date, but they already have this emotional bond, and it's a it's a fascinating sort of inversion. And that emotional bond is built on them writing letters back and forth to each other, and I I think oh, that, 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 that whole montage, montage is beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, where you all yeah those just the snippets and oh, oh. it says so much. Like yeah, I think I, I think Rushmore is probably still his best script, but I think he's gotten so good as director, mm-hmm. and it, like he can depict not just you know. Often it's just comedic, like he can just frame something and there's so much going on and it's such a, it's so funny and there's so much busy work and background and stuff like that. But also just emotionally that montage, just where they're writing the things and the little snippets of the letters that you get and Mm -hmm. stuff. And and you also get to see the problems that they're having because when they're with when they're with each other they're the best versions of themselves. Yeah. So you don't get the sense of like well you know why why are they saying that these are disturbed kids and then you yeah. see them like getting in fights and stuff and so you know you do get that aspect of their personalities that you wouldn't get without also, that. Also, when there are children acting like adults, mm-hmm. I, in, in Wes Anderson's movies, adults act like children and children act like adults. Exactly, yeah. that's and the, the movies thing. that have actual children in them. I find. I don't. I can't put a finger on why that works for me better, but like Max Fisher is the most endearing character. Oh God, yeah. Like <laughs> he sure is. His, like because the things about him, I'm just, I'm just like, yes, you're awesome. Like I want to, I want you, I want to, I want to be your friend. But also just like you're like, oh God, you're fucking like 15. You're, yeah. You're such a dinkus. Like what are you doing? <laughs> oh right. <laughs> like romance languages and stuff. <laughs> like, oh, South America and such. <laughs> like, he's such a moron, but he's so cool. Oh, are so, they? Yeah. yeah. Oh, oh man. And, that, that's that's scary that's watching that dinner scene. Where he's drunk? <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. Oh, You're the one who let him have like, a whiskey and soda. Oh, my Can I hit, God. I want to hit play. <laughs> I hit play. <laughs> It's just so scary to watch because we've all been that at some point in our lives. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, God. I, I don't know. Maybe that's why it's so appealing because it, it's sort of this mixture of when I was that age in that situation, I wish I was that kind of sophisticated and yeah. had said those yeah. things. But mm-hmm. there's also that cap on it because you are 15. Yeah. And it, so it's just like, okay, that's the best case scenario that it could possibly be. <laughs> or, yeah, like it, it's such a great. Because, I mean, ideally, when you're, I mean, ideally, there's tons of different ways a movie can operate, and there's tons of different, you know, narratives and stuff. But often, um, you know, films, you A, want to watch a character um, have an arc and grow in some way, Mm -hmm. but you also want a character that's endearing. 
Um, so it often can be hard to thread the line between making a character that audiences love, um, you know, that they're rooting for, but also making that character have able to have to grow in a significant way so that the audience feels it. And I think Max Fisher like is the best of both worlds Mm -hmm. because he's such an endearing little guy, but he's also such a shit (laughs) (laughs) for the same reason, which is just, he's precocious and he hasn't grown into his feelings. It was really interesting for me watching Rushmore this week because it was, that, that was only my second viewing of the film. I mean, I hadn't watched Rushmore since 1998. Woo! Um, yeah, I know, right? It was crazy. Um, so I was on, like, opposite ends of Max Fisher. Sure. Um, because, I, I mean, he, like, 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 he's what stood out to me in this subsequent viewing. And, I mean, just, like, in retrospect and just, like, in the experiences I've had, there was so much more that I related to, especially with um, how he has such trouble um, like directly expressing his feelings. So he just sort of constructs what he thinks the people around him want. Yeah. Um, You know, you know, with like the aquarium and with um, the, the, the kite flying club that he starts for Margaret at the end to kind of apologize to her for being in a a little shit. Um, And and, and, just, just now having, the self-awareness to realize like when I do the same kind of things or, you know, that like the like awkward love triangle dynamic and just like having had all those experiences. Like, yeah, when I first saw the movie, I was just reacting to like the cool directing and the music yeah. and just like, Oh man, this kid's adorable. But um, yeah, yeah. Now it's just, it, 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 it has this like, like depth and sentimentality that, I'm kind of glad that I waited 16 years to revisit yeah. it just because it was such like a different experience. I, I love the character of Margaret. Yeah. Oh, I, she's I, great. I, oh. I love someone like Max Fisher shows up in public school and everyone just sort of staring at him and it's like, what the fuck is he doing or whatever? Yes. There's going to be that one person who's like, holy shit. Yeah. This is the hottest guy I've ever seen. Yeah. <laughs> this guy's so cool. Yeah. And like you know, even even in the way she like just cheats on the side, like that. So much is told. Like she's not a particularly you know three dimensional character, mm-hmm. but like she is just in that like. Oh, I heard the Navy wanted to buy your science project. It's like no, I faked all the results. Yeah, because like, she's the so Max Fisher her. of Grover Cleveland. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's also interesting too. Is that uh, there's always this like uh, darkness to his movies. That always surprises me, even on rewatches. Where I'm like, "Oh my god!" They mentioned hand jobs a lot in this, and like, um, and then there's like a, a dead. Cat. I can think of nothing darker. <laughs> dead cats and dead dogs and like his last three movies, right? There's like a yeah. dead, kitten, dead, dead animals everywhere. Like he just throws in the occasional like, "Whoa!" I wasn't expecting that. Well, well that's yeah. the, that's the other thing that keeps him from being too precious. Is yeah, that everything it's very is, grounding. Yeah, everything is grounded in a sadness and a weight to it. It's not just yeah, Wee! or yeah, or just like a like a a grounding vulgarity like in Grand Budapest where you know you, you see you see Gustav getting sucked off by an older woman yeah. and he he's very vulgar he curses a lot which yeah. really balances yeah. out his um, outpouring of romantic poetry you know yeah. it makes him a lot more realistic even though he is this like you know um, he's so stylized and he's so you know um, I affected should, I, I feel like I should also say of Rushmore one of the reasons I'm obsessed with that movie is because 
I watched that movie. Um, I, I watched that movie in a film class I took in high school, and that film class was the first time I ever sort of learned how to look at films as an art. And you know, Rushmore was probably my favorite movie I saw for the first time out of that film class, and we watched it like ten times. Oh, like wow. we watched we watched it in class like two times, but I watched it like five more times mm-hmm. or something like that, like on my own. You know, to you know, write my papers and stuff. So I'm. So I have probably viewed Rushmore with an eye closer – like pretty much the only other movies I've, I've watched closer would probably be like Halloween. But like, <laughs> like, a movie, like a movie we've just seen a hundred times and I'm – and because Halloween is a slasher movie and I'm, I love slasher movies, like I'm acutely aware of its structure. Uh, so I'm – like Halloween and Rushmore are probably the two movies that I've seen the most and paid the most attention to when watching them and stuff. Hmm. Um, so that's a, it's a foundational movie for me in that way. Too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, kind of going back to, uh, Jim, what, what you were saying about how, um, his movies are grounded by sadness. Something that I noticed, mm-hmm. um, watching them all in rapid succession was that in pretty much all of them, um, at least one of the main characters, um, is profoundly shaped by a recent loss of a loved one. And I thought that was, that wasn't a recurring theme that I'd noticed uh, before just sort of like watching it as they come out. And it's something that I'm, I'm kind of surprised I didn't notice because like, it's so, it's like so obviously there in the plot, it's not something that's hidden away. Yeah. Like, you know, that Chaz is a widower, you know, that, that zero is a refugee and his entire family has been killed in a political uprising in his home country. And you know, you know, it's like these characters say that, but it's just like the, watching watching these movies for the first time you know you, you just get caught up in in the 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 stylized um way that they look in in the whimsy of it all in the in the energy and that sadness can get overlooked it, it was really only you know in these repeat viewings that i did notice that gravity yeah and max fisher is essentially mourning the loss of his mom right while miss cross's yeah, like yeah. mourning her husband. All, yeah. all of his characters have dead people yeah. in, in mm-hmm. their lives. Yeah, yeah, they do. Um, it's, it's it, I mean, yeah, pretty much you walk you walk back the uh, inciting incident for why the characters are, um, you know, why the characters are messed up the way they are. You walk it back, it comes down to a loved one dying. Yeah. Like pretty much every time. I don't think there is a, you know, there is a, I don't remember Bottle Rocket. That's the other thing I want to say is I didn't watch Bottle Rocket again. Eh. It's okay. I like it, but it's all right. Yeah. yeah. Is it what? So is is I it, haven't seen it in a long time, though. I, I, yeah, yeah. Like you guys, I watched it because I hadn't seen it the whole way through, and I mean, it's it's not it's not a bad movie by any means, and you can definitely. Uh, I mean, I mean, it's very it's very different, you know, um, just in terms of the characters and the setting, etc. Um, from his other movies, you you can see sort of the the nascent. Wes Anderson-iness mm-hmm. in it, though you know the way that he moves the camera. Um, but I, I just found it to be a pretty typical mid '90s comedy caper. Yeah, like I, a, can, I sense that totally sure. <laughs> a lesser Cohen vehicle, perhaps. Although Scorsese you know. said it was one of the best movies of the '90s, so. <laughs> he also said that about also, David Cronenberg. What did Martin Mull say? That's what I wanted. Yeah. <laughs> All, Scorsese also thinks The Exorcist 2 is better than The Exorcist 1. Mm. There's no accounting for taste. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. 
But uh, at any rate, um, yeah, I don't know. Is there is do you guys want to talk about any other of the movies in debt? We talk mostly about Rushmore and Royal Tenenbaums. Um, yeah, I mean, like. Life Aquatic is a movie that's kind of snuck up on me over the years because I didn't like it when I first saw it. Mm-hmm. But the more I watch it, I, I, I warm up to it. It's not one of my you know all-time favorites of his, but there's just something about it. And maybe it all just comes down to like a gathering of the characters together towards the end in a Seeger Rose song playing. But <laughs> I find myself really moved by that moment now. Um and that's the thing I like about all of his movies too, is that they like all the characters sort of to come together at the end and just have a moment. And usually it's yeah in slow motion too. I don't know. There's just something really beautiful about all the characters having a moment together towards the end of a movie that I just love in general. But I don't know. I think uh, Life Aquatic is a mess for sure, and I, I it's it's inconsistent and it's just kind of all over the place. But I still I I don't know. There's just something about it and. Uh, he's sort of hinting at a little bit more of his cartoonish playfulness and spots, I think, mm-hmm. with especially with like the CGI creatures and stuff um, that I kind of like. Uh, and uh, you well, know, they're, having... they're, stop, they're stop motion, aren't they? Are they? Yeah, they might be. Yeah, I think. Right. Yeah, I think the littler ones are stop motion, but the 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 leopard sharks. Yeah, CGI. yeah that's kinda, oh, okay. I think it is. Mm-hmm. Can, yeah, I, can no. I say can I say something completely scandalous and sh- and shark and shocking? Mm-hmm. <laughs> sharking, um, sharking. I I think the leopard shark at the end is a disappointment. I think it's an ugly <laughs> character design. I was really let down by it. That is my honest reaction. I kind of feel the same way to that. Scene. I mean, I don't, at Life Aquatic. I've I've grown to like it, but I like I like the parts of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's how I feel it, about it. But the reason I don't like the ending, regardless of how much cigarettes they play, <laughs> is because I'm not really invested in any of the characters at that point. They kind of are just do it. Like Steve Zizou is such an asshole, like in every possible yeah. way at yeah. all times. That how can you be an asshole to Kate Blanchett when you're being interviewed by her? I don't know. <laughs> no, but like I, I will say that like even after rewatches, I'm still not like uh, emotionally invested in you know when um what's ned dies like i'm i'm actually really surprised yeah. by that like i'm like it just eh. kind of happens yeah, yeah it just does yeah yeah like with a movie that already has so like i don't like well you know world tenenbaums is a movie about a family that's falling apart so of course it's a mess because it's about people who are in a mess or whatever like i you know <laughs> jim we've had famous arguments about i don't like well, it's about blank, so its structure is blank. Um, <laughs> I don't like that necessarily as a blanket defense of all movies, where it's like, it was about people who are bored, so it's a boring movie. Like, no, that just means <laughs> that you chose a bad thing to make a movie about. Um, like, so you can say, like, oh, yeah, well, it's, of course it comes out of nowhere, and it's just because that's the way death happens. And mm-hmm. that's, but, like you have, if you're gonna, if that's gonna be the conceit of an event in your movie, is that just like death is so sudden and just happens like that, and is like at the blink of an eye, everything can change. Like you have to kind of make your movie about that. Otherwise, it's just like it. It's just a thing that happens. Yeah. 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 I, I mean, ostensibly, it is about that because it does start with like the tragic death of his best friend, and you know he's sort of like coming to terms with that over the course of the movie, but that's not really highlighted because there is so much else going on. Yeah. I mean, I liked 
this movie a lot better in the second viewing, but that's just because in the first one, I was so overwhelmed by everything that was going on. Like, yeah. it was really difficult for me to, um, to to try and empathize with the characters or pick up on the themes, because I was just like, there's, there's, a, there's a clay fish, and this guy's singing David Bowie in Portuguese, and I don't know what's happening. Yeah. I didn't even know, like, Willem Dafoe's character was in the movie the first time I saw it. <laughs> the second time around, I was charmed by him. I think he's delightful. Willem Dafoe's great. Oh, yeah. He should do his... more comedy. He's great yeah, at yeah. it. I, I think out of, like, all of his Wes Anderson movie performances, Life Aquatic, I think he's the best. You don't yeah. you don't like the rat? I, I don't I don't dislike the rat. I'm just saying I like him the best in Life Aquatic. So what do you think, Patrick? In terms of Fantastic Mr. Fox, too, is like um, just did that free him up to have like this, um, you know, different approach and just a, a different outlet to express his vision? Well, I, I mean, that's certainly what it feels like. I mean, I I haven't I haven't really read any interviews or anything. It could be. It's just completely coincidence that those movies happen in that order or whatever. But like, yeah, yeah, it, it just feels like he made an animated movie, and I mean, he made a stop motion animated movie. Which, if you're going to direct an animated movie, that is an arduous way to go yeah, about no it. No shit. Apparently, that yeah. the, that shoot was just like a nightmare. Um, <laughs> and but like, he made an animated movie, so he's not bound by reality at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, he can. You know, he can create his own world. I mean, Roald Dahl is such a... Roald Dahl was a touchstone when they were writing Rushmore. When they were... Hmm. When when they were writing Rushmore, they were like, well, a kind of Roald Dahl world, which is just a heightened, you know, a heightened reality in which... Interesting. Um, you, hmm. you think you're in a, in the real world, but then, like, Max can get all these contractors out there, and we're not going to justify that he can. He just can. You mm-hmm. know, and, like, stuff like that. Uh, to build the aquarium, I, I should say. But, um... So, like... You know, Fantastic Mr. Fox, it's it's single-minded. I mean, it's not just a heist movie, and it's not just about... I mean, the Roald Dahl book, if I remember correctly, is just uh, sort of the comedic conceit of the farmers going so out of their minds to get the fox that they end up destroying everything they have. Yeah, that's that's my memory of it. I seem to Mine remember too. being like heavy on the Quentin Crisp illustrations. Yeah. And not, Quentin Crisp was he? Yeah. Yeah, and kind of light on the narration. Exactly. So, like, thematic, I think that's just that story. And there's more going on to it than that as far as just a fear of middle age and not wanting to settle down. And But I think that that theme is kind of the only one. Um, there's his kid as well. I, I mean, I think there's that theme, but I also sort of um, saw a theme of um, being true to one's identity. And I mean, perhaps like in the, and, and that sort of battling with, you know, feeling middle age and feeling like you have to domesticate yourself. Yeah. yeah fear um, you of know, losing significance. Yeah. Um, because um, he talks a lot about like their wild animal natures and how they can't, you know, you know, forget that. And that's sort of paralleling with like Ash trying to find his role as his, you know, as his father's son, um, but he's not, he's not an athlete despite his protests. A- Ash is oh, like, if, yeah. if <laughs> Ash is like, if Max Fisher wasn't spectacular, but wanted to be. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's sad. It is real sad. It's the same voice. Or it's the I don't same. know, but it, as far as like, there are different. Yeah. But it seems to be pretty much tackling that one sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And each, and it is the way the movie's set up is just each scene is set up by the last one. Everything's just set oh, up. Oh, yeah. It's yeah. not, it's not mm-hmm. a sprawling story yeah. where there's all sorts of B stories and C stories and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's 
It's just this is this happens, and then therefore this happens, therefore this. And I just find that to be a, a more pleasing structure. I mean, that's also the structure of Moonrise Kingdom and, and Grand Budapest Hotel. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so the, less- structure, the structure and the, the color schemes and the framing, is, it's like he's sort of borrowed liberally from like just working in that pedigree or that, that sort of that pastiche of fantastic Mr. Fox. Like, oh yeah. There, well, there's, yeah, there's some like stop. There's like some weird CGI, like stop motion moments in grand in, Budapest for sure. In grand Budapest and in moonrise kingdom. Um, particularly when they're all hanging off the church. Like, oh, that's a, yeah, yeah. Right. Right. And right. they're all hanging like arm, arm and arm or when, mm-hmm. um, Ed things. Norton, when Ed Norton like jumps over the river to uh-huh. save Harvey Keitel's character, he, it's oh, like a love big that. CGI jump. Oh, okay. and when he gets struck by lightning, like there's moments like that where it's just it's a very flexible, it's a more flexible reality, not just in terms of the kind of world it is, but the kind of things that can happen in it. Mm-hmm. It's interesting with Fantastic Mr. Fox because, um, I mean, I. Fantastic Mr. Fox, I, I really loved Roald Dahl as a kid. Fantastic Mr. Fox oh, yeah, wasn't one of my favorite ones. No. Um, but I kind of feel like uh, Wes Anderson's interpretation steps away from the brutality to a certain extent. I mean, the farmers are coming after them in this really scary way, and they have to like dig for their lives, and like they might starve. So there is that darkness, but um, I, I think with um, so, sort of bringing in his sense of refinement and his sense of civilization that I don't always feel is present in Roald Dahl, which tends to be a little more like, like chaotic and yeah. scrappy. Yeah. I've it read that me, critique too. Yeah. Yeah. It, it made me think a lot more of uh, E.B. White and his books. So sure. uh, like, mm. like especially like Stuart Little and uh, Trumpet of the Swan. I'm going in, like, Children's literature. Yeah, Stuart, right no, 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 no. It's true that Stuart. I didn't think about Stuart. Yeah, little, it's but, like yeah. yeah, fancy little animals, you know. Yeah, it's a fancy little mouse man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and like and like trumpet of the swan, where it's like this swan, and and he you know can't make any noise, but he can play his trumpet, and he plays Cole Porter, and he gets a job at a hotel, and you know. It's yeah. Like... Um, but he, no, I think I think I think the manic energy is is rolled dull, and I think yeah. there's a yeah, little sure. bit of nastiness oh, yeah. in that. It's just the rat with the switchblade, and yeah. they're killing chickens. You just see the chickens' necks get broken. Yeah, that, yeah, that's true. It, it, it's not just like and the farmers coming at them with like the giant, you know. Yeah, well, but and... also I think part of that is just you have George Clooney as your lead, and you're not going to worry too much about him. <laughs> it's like, uh, don't worry, George Clooney. He'll pull out of this all right. He's the most he's he's fucking swan ass George Clooney. Why hasn't he been in any other Wes Anderson movies? Probably he since. won't work for scale. He probably just. Well, like probably, I'm sure that the way Wes Anderson, pity. I'm sure the way Wes Anderson gets his movies made with the cast that they have is that they they don't take on big paychecks to be in it. Oh no! Like I, I even know that Bill Murray like paid, was only paid nine thousand dollars for Rushmore, which is oh, wow. crazy. But yeah, yeah. Rush, well, Bill Murray said he would do it for free, and also I think he like wrote out a check for Wes Anderson for one of the shots that Disney didn't want to pay for. Oh really? Oh wow! That's great. That's fantastic. Yeah, well, I gotta say, like the 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 degree of thoughtfulness in his compositions mm-hmm. is prevalent throughout most of his career. But I, I I will say that, like after Fantastic Mr. Fox, there there was this sense of reinvigoration with his style, and like it never it didn't get tiresome for me. Like I know people sort of frowned upon Grand Budapest Hotel as just like. Uh, it's just Wes Anderson doing Wes Anderson, and there's no Wes Anderson movie that's like Grand Budapest Hotel. I know, though. 
That's what like, I of thought. Course, of course mm-hmm. it has all the earmarks of a Wes Anderson movie, but it's not like Darjeeling Limited where literally the moves he's doing are just worse versions of moves we've already seen. Yeah. I know, right? I yeah. I, 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 mean, I... I was I was a little worried because I, I kind of had the sense that we're all like really into Wes Anderson, so I figured this would just be like you know Wes Anderson circle jerk. That's sure. okay. Um, but I'll, that's like, his next movie, by Wes the way. Anderson circle the jerk. Wes Anderson circle jerk. <laughs> you just see the camera pan around in perfect ninety degree angles, and it's all above, it's all above the waist, but you just see Jason Schwartzman going uh huh, and then it cuts it over. <laughs> yeah. I'm totally signed up for that. Like, yeah, Perfect symmetry. Yeah. <laughs> Just gorgeous wallpaper I'm in the being background. followed by a moon shadow. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, <laughs> I, I, I really don't understand the, um, the, the, the criticism of um, his, his style and his, you know, you know, sense of attention to detail in his stylized manner. I was reading this um, this critique of um, of Fantastic Mr. Fox that David Edelstein wrote, and he uh, he said that it was like the first Wes Anderson movie that he liked because it made sense for him to to preen. He referred to Wes Anderson's directorial style as preening, uh, which I don't really see. I mean, there is a lot of you know artifice and art that goes into it, but for me, that just feels so genuine. It doesn't feel um, like he's trying to be something he's not like, like everything that he does with the little details and the costumes and that sort of like, like, like purity of character. It, it just, it feels so like coming from completely from the heart to me. And I don't, yeah. you know, especially, yeah. especially the last two movies. I think it's There's a genuineness to, to it. There's a yeah. confidence behind it as well. I think it's just easier to see that though. If you like the movies, like I, for me, how Hartley just seems like. Well, what is the point? Like he's everything is so constructed. Like I can't see any. The point is experiencing you, like the antithesis of humanity, which is something like I am shocked that I find endearing in that world. Right. Well, my point. My point is like I don't find those movies funny. So like all their attempts at jokes, it's just or like to do a more a different example. I don't. I don't think any of us are big fans of Tim and Eric. No. So no. you like you watch Tim and Eric and you're just sort of revulsed by it, repulsed by it because it's like what are they even? It seems like so self consciously like just bad and everything. But to someone whose sensibilities and con- and sense of con- like humor that ties into it, just, it must feel like oh my god, this is the most pure distillation of this thing I've ever seen. This is amazing. Okay, yeah, that's fair. And I think if you don't like Wes Anderson, like it comes across as. Look at this because mm-hmm. he's annoying you, as opposed to hey, look at this. So, so you think it comes down to like the personality type of the viewer? Yeah, like I, right. I remember so I read review of this guy. He hates Wes Anderson movies. Moonrise Kingdom was like his least favorite movie of all time, and it's like what? yeah, if, if you hate what Wes Anderson does, like Wes Anderson's doing a shitload of it in Moonrise Kingdom. I, I know I, you're shocked. Did he not- see like a glimpse into the mind of Charles Swan? I mean, that, like that's the thing is like there, there's been so many imitators of his style sure. done half-assed, and like it's crazy because like I know Roman Coppola has co-written a couple of Wes Anderson movies, but like him as a director is just like Wes Anderson imitation. Yeah, I didn't see that, um, but I, don't, I love Wes. I also just God, there are so few. I mean, I love Judd Apatow. I love Seth Rogen. I love so many of the movies that those people make. So mm-hmm. many of those comedies. I think they're so funny. But, like, it's really, like, as far as just, like, really well-directed comedies, 
Yeah. Like, where, like, direction's really important. It's pretty much just Wes Anderson and Edgar Wright. <laughs> like, comedy has gotten so loose and slack and so much, and so improvis- Im- yeah. improvisational that, like, s- most comedies just feel like they're shot like television. Yeah, um, they've all turned then- to This is 40 at this point. And no, they have an alternative. I wouldn't say Neighbors is not This is 40. This is 40 oh, yeah, is hardly like, even a comedy. There's, there's been a couple of comedies this year. You know, I'm just saying, around. like, if I couldn't tell you what the visual identity of 21 Jump Street is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's not, it doesn't distinguish itself. No, I think 21 Jump Street's hysterical. I love 21 Jump Street. Right. I'm just saying it's nice to have comedies also that are really carefully put together yeah. and yes. directed. And kind of hypnotic in some weird way, like oh yeah, yeah, totally. Um, I I I I think that comes from a sense of presence that his movies had. I found that especially with Grand Budapest, where it was almost mind altering the way that um, every like everything in that movie is so present. Um, something I noticed about it um, that really got me thinking about this quality in his movies is. Um, the sense of athleticism in Grand Budapest, where there's scenes of them like running in the background or jumping from one from one ledge to another, where there's just such precision in the way that the characters are moving. They look like um, it, it's like watching footage of the Olympics from from like 1930, you know, where, where there's like this, <laughs> oh, yeah, this sort of like vintage that. aspect to it. But it's so it's so precise and it's so vigorous and it just makes me feel like like yeah like everything that is happening in the moment is just like so super saturated in that moment and i think that really ties into um how his his sense of time and location are these like pastiches but they're always sort of on on a turning point where it's like moonrise kingdom where it's like these characters are you know on the verge between childhood and adulthood or grand budapest where the characters are on the verge of um their world changing because of pastiche world war ii that's about to happen yeah um I this is oh my god this is going to be so pretentious but it's Wes Anderson so it's fitting. Um there's this uh concept in Japanese aesthetics called um mono no aware. I hope I pronounced that right. Um it's basically a sense of um awareness of the impermanence of the world that m- makes you sad but also makes you aware of how beautiful that thing is because it is impermanent and yeah, I, I just feel like like his movies are like that. I mean, so, there's so many of the important settings are, um, y- you know, set in places where you're only there for a brief time. You know, hotels, tents, trains, um, and and you know, like I was saying before, where you know, so many of the characters are shaped by their memories of a lost loved one. The beach in Moonrise Kingdom yeah, is wiped the, out by oh the storm. Oh my god! Yeah, yeah. Like I didn't, I didn't remember that the first time we saw the movie, but then I saw it again. I was like, their beach is gone, and he's just painting it, and it's just like. I was so overwhelmed by how, like, I, I mean, I, I could be that could be my, my like white person interpretation of a concept I don't understand. But if I'm understanding it correctly, I totally felt that way. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and I just feel like his movies are are steeped in that. Like, it's a time that's lost, but it's still there for him. Like, there's this quote that Zero says about Gustav at the end of Grand Budapest, where he says, um, "I think his world had vanished long before he entered it." Uh, but I will say he certainly sustained the illusion with a marvelous grace. And that if Wes Anderson, up. yeah, if he ever said anything about himself, it was that quote in that movie. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Yeah. Wow. I, I don't think I have anything to add. Like Regina just summarized everything. 
right there. No, I didn't, I didn't think about that. It's a, it's a really interesting... What's that uh, Japanese? Uh, mono no aware? Is that... What what kind of... Uh, is that like a, a, a... So you say like that cultivates itself in a certain kind of aesthetic. Like what... How does that come out in... Um, it, 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 came, it came about from um, Japanese literary theory. Mm-hmm. Um, hmm. But uh, it, it's also... Um, I, I don't know. I'm just going off like the Wikipedia article. I'm sure. in no way an expert. Um it um but um uh ozu mm-hmm. um his movies are very steeped in that concept okay um and and i I've think heard that yeah yeah and and i think that um the use of uh cherry blossoms in japanese art sort of speaks to that where it's hmm. it's like you know it's something that's so beautiful but at the same time it's delicate and it's fleeting but that um that it sort of um brings one um to be a little sad but sort of think about like the beauty of the present moment it's it sort of also stems from like buddhism you know where there's that constant awareness of the impermanence yeah. of the material world if i'm gonna be honest i'm gonna be honest that's why i love october so much i could see that yeah because i because winter because i have seasonal like affective disorder mm-hmm. and just every winter for me is the worst mm-hmm. because i'm yeah. not getting enough sun and i and my depression you know my depression is always that it's worse in the winter and mm-hmm. to me like you know not only do i like you know spooky things and halloween or whatever i like like part of it is just like I'm enjoying this now before there's no more leaves, and then I have to start dealing with winter. Yeah, yeah, that's feel, why autumn will always be my favorite season. Yeah, I I feel that way about uh, summer solstice because I know that it's the longest day of the year, and that feels really magical to me. But at the same time, it means that the days are going to start getting shorter. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, that's like. So, so that, but bow ties. But that, bow ties. <laughs> that is what I mean, Santa, Santa said. To put a bow tie on it, yeah. Oh, yeah, no, it's the, it's the cherry blossom thing, but with, with bow ties. But with white people shit. And sometimes brown people shit, but in ways that make you go, hmm, I don't yeah. know. <laughs> yeah. Things that make you go, hmm. Yeah. Great stuff. Let's give our top three Wes Anderson picks, guys. Uh, Sure, you go ahead. I know, I always go first. Yeah. You're gonna make everybody go first. And okay. You always, and you Fine, always... I'll go first. Jeez. Number three was Rushmore. Number two was Grand Budapest Hotel, and number one was Moonrise Kingdom. Wow. For me. All right, Jim. Jim. Number one. Wait, I'll start at number three. That's how it should go. Yeah. Number. <laughs> number. I thought you were king of building up tension. That's true. Number three, surprisingly, Moonrise Kingdom. Number two. Royal Tenenbaums and number one Rushmore. Okay, and then if I can do this gym style, number three is a film that I think <laughs> we all appreciate. Shut up. It was a film that sort of signaled a change for Wes Anderson. My number three is uh, Grand Budapest Hotel. Uh, my number two is Moonrise Kingdom, and my number one is Rushmore. All right. Can, can we say what our top three are for our doppelgangers? Can we get our doppelganger? Sure. Well, pa- well, well, doppelganger Patrick. Hold on. Okay. All right. Okay. Hey. Hi. Hi. Um, well, obviously the best one is Royal Tenenbaums because it's, it just bites off the most and it's just so iconic and the, the craft of that movie, you know, I cry every time Ben Stiller says I've had a rough year, dad. And <laughs> like uh, Gene Hackman's never been better. And you know, that moment when uh, that Nico song plays, that's just uh, the best moment in cinema history. So number one, Patrick just Royal turned Tenenbaums. into Jim basically there. 
Number two is Life Aquatic because it's like his ode to Bill Murray, and I just love Bill. You know, it's like Bill Murray is this the greatest actor of all time because I'm doppelganger Patrick. And then um, my number three uh, would probably be uh, Rushmore because it's just now Max Fisher is such a cool little guy. <laughs> He's a cool little guy. How about you, doppelganger Jim? <laughs> A version of the one I love in which one of the partner's doppelgangers is a Muppet. <laughs> <laughs> and no one references it. That's all I wanted to be in life anyway. I really like uh, <laughs> Darjeeling Limited because it takes place on a train. <laughs> and uh, I, I also like Bottle Rocket. Because James Kahn is in it, and he was in The Godfather. And uh, I think number three, hmm, I'll go with Life Aquatic. <laughs> Doppelganger Jim took on just a, just a Susan of uh, Bobcat Goldthwait. <laughs> Louis Armstrong meets Bobcat Goldthwait. Uh, yeah. Doppelganger Regina, what are your top three? Um... My doppelganger top three, number one, Fantastic Mr. Fox, because real Regina was really struggling with having to leave that off. (laughs) (laughs) Number two would be uh, Royal Tenenbaums, um, for purely sentimental reasons, makes me think about college, doppelganger university. Sure. Uh, Where all doppelgangers go. Yeah. yeah. And number they three, they got a great doppelganger <laughs> program. Oh, they do. Yeah, I, I majored in doppelganger studies. Yeah, um, <laughs> with a minor in American doppelganger studies. <laughs> um, and my number three is still going to be Rushmore because Jason Schwartzman's a hottie. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> awesome. And hey, he plays Jim. the drums. Jim. <laughs> hey, Jim. Hi. I don't know what I'm going to do without you on the next episode when we talk about Terrence Fisher. I don't know With, either. It's going to be me. It's going to be my dear friend, Robert Reinecke. <laughs> I'm excited um, for that, though. He's oh, yeah. Robert guy. Reinecke, of course, you know, from the Harry George Clouseau episode. Oh, yeah. He has, been, he has been stumping for this Terrence Fisher episode to happen pretty much since he started listening. Since birth. Yeah, since wow. he was born, he wanted this podcast to do an episode on Terrence Fisher. He has seen, if I'm not mistaken, every movie by Terrence Fisher that is available in home video, which Terrence Fisher made about 30 movies before he ever started with the Hammer Horror series. 30? He's also Three. been like one 30. Of the more yeah, wow. Like he made some crazy amount of movies that are just hard to get on video. He's also so one he, of our uh, fans that consistently try to um, – Participate with us, sending us yeah. emails, sending us articles, you know, through the Robert Reinecke's the greatest. Yeah, he's he's one of the best. And he just started a new podcast. Um, oh, my God. I should know what the name of it is. but It's called Watch the Skies. Yes, thank you. On keep, Where the keep, Long Tail Ends. Keep Watching the Skies, yes. Keep Watching the Skies, okay. Yeah, so I'm cool. very happy for him, and I believe Nat Amaral is involved. And Yeah, it's going to be a monthly uh, podcast about sci-fi movies. That's really cool. So I'm, gonna, I'm very excited. I'm going to have to worm my way onto that one for sure. <laughs> Maybe if I happen to sneak in a Terrence Fisher movie throughout the month, I'll shoot you an email or leave you a voicemail or something fun. Have you seen any Terrence? Have you seen any of those Hammer horror movies? Gosh, I don't know. I I'd have to look up his filmography. The I Christopher think, Lee, Peter Cushing. I've seen. Yeah, I've seen like Dracula and Curse of the uh, Frankenstein. Yeah, I think I've seen a couple of them. Okay, but there's a huge <laughs> load that you got to get through, dude. No, well, I'm gonna watch a lot. 
Okay. Uh, it is the season. Indeed. Um, so anyway, uh, Regina, where can the listeners um, find your work online? Uh, let's see. You can follow me on Twitter at Tesseract, T-E-S-S-A underscore R-A-C-K-E-D. I'm fucking hilarious. It's true. Um, it's true. You can read my um, film stuff. Uh, consistent panda bear shape, panda bear shape dot wordpress dot com. It's a blog about fat people in cinema. Uh, yeah, so that's a thing that I'm doing. Uh, and also, if you write poetry, send me your poetry. I will put it in my journal if it's good. Uh, CSHS quarterly dot blogspot wordpress. Google CSHS quarterly. <laughs> All, uh, uh, again, um, you also, I even even if you're not interested in the uh, subject of fat people in cinema, uh, Regina wrote a very good article about Under the Skin. Which, if you oh. saw that movie and you're like, I can't make head or tails of that thing. Yeah, yeah, check it out, girl. Um, also, oh, speaking of Under the Skin, real quick, I read the novel. If you don't, if you don't get that movie, if you did get that movie, if you want that movie to just be brought to the next level for you, read the fucking novel. It's good. It's I it's might really do that. Good. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's it brings a whole like body horror element into the story, um, and yeah, it's really good. Just read read the novel. Cool. Well, I'm pretty sure at the end of the year uh, when we're doing the best of episodes, what's going to be on your top ten list? <laughs> Maybe under the skin. Maybe, Maybe boyhood. I don't know, guys. <laughs> Maybe. All right. Um, so anyway. Um, uh, I am oh I'm on at Patrick Rapole at uh, Twitter um, at Patrick Rapole on Letterboxd Jim yeah I will still be rating movies when I watch them on Letterboxd as Instant Jim and Twitter which I don't use very often but I'm trying to is Instant Jim and I also f- failed to mention that I've seen the new Cronenberg movie and it has fart jokes in it <laughs> so is it is it is it like a horrific sort of stomach churning fart joke. Not really. It's it's like his funniest movie in many many years. I will say it's not great. It's not. What really... is his second funniest? What would you say? Is, is I, I is think Nick's I think ex, I think Existence is kind of funny. Oh, I never saw Existence. Yeah, I don't know. I, it's it's a kind of a goofy commentary on both his films and video games. So I, I think, think I never I never think of David Cronenberg as as a as, as a movie. I, I I watch his movies for chuckles, but. No, Maps of the Stars is a very interesting movie. It's not one of his better movies, but it's it's definitely uh, uh, a, a worth a look. But I'm it's really probably going to have to rent that and then pirate it to watch it. Yes, you will. Okay. Julianne Moore is great, as always. So, um, yeah, so I am really excited for the months to come um, in terms of taking a little time off, but more for uh, what Patrick has in store with future guests. And, of course, I will be in touch with everybody in some regard or another, whether if it's through my silly parody thong or just contributing an email or voicemail or something. So, cool. absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on. I had a blast. Same here. This was one yeah. of my favorite episodes to date. I. Uh, I thought it was shite. Uh, <laughs> you would. <laughs> anyway, uh, until next time, I'm Patrick Rapole. And I'm Jim Laskowski. And I love you, Patrick. I love you, Jim. See you later. Bye. We shall walk again On long delay
So you think Ringo Starr is better than George Harrison? I like him more. I, he, I, I wouldn't say Ringo Starr has had a great solo career. I'd probably say George Harrison had a better solo career. Okay. But Well, that, that I'll accept. But people like to say George is better than Paul, and those people are boring. No, no. Those no, are no, boring-ass no. people. Do you think George is better than Paul? No, I just... Mm-hmm. Shut up. <laughs> oh, my God. I just... I, I always think about all, like, something. That song is... That song is very dull. Eh, it's all right. I've always thought While My Guitar Gently Weeps is overrated. Yeah, I think that's an overrated song, too. While My Guitar Gently Weeps. I like that song. Um, it goes on a bit long. Though one of my favorite Beatles songs is a George song, and that's Blue Jay Way. Oh! That's a weird-ass George song. I never knew that he... You would not yeah. pay it for a George song, but yeah. it's good. It's a great song. Hmm. Um, but he, I think he did, like... <laughs> Hold on, I'm going to look up the White Album right now. We're going to go through. Are you recording right now? Of course I am. Okay, so this is going to be... You can put this at the end. We're going to look up the Beatles album from 1968. Um, and we're going to see which ones were written by who and what are the best songs in the I album. can tell you now, Don't Pass Me By is Ringo. Yeah, Don't Pass Me By I like, because that has a weird uh, production to it. The organ on it just sounds crazy and like... Like the organ's too close to the microphone, like this, it's kind of distorted. It's really cool, um, and the, yeah, it just has like wacky percussion in the background, like just clanging and stuff. So let's see. Harrison did "While My Guitar Gently Weeps" is whatever. Yeah. Uh, Harrison did "Piggies," which is <laughs> real bad. Like "Piggies" is like he thought, like he wrote "Piggies" in five minutes, and then he's like, "I should sing that to my daughter." Oh wait, no, I should put that on a Beatles album. <laughs> It sounds political. Yeah, it, it it yeah. The Beatles should never get political. That's yeah. like, Beatles at their worst is when they're doing revolution and stuff. Oh, mm. long, long, long. It's fucking great. Oh, yeah, that, that is actually good. Oh, that song's so good. Mm-hmm. Uh, I forgot about long, long, long. Oh, that makes me mad. Okay, so I can't hate Harrison on. No, long, you shouldn't. Because he did long, long, long. Uh, he, but he also did Safoy Tuffle Truffle, which is garbage. Song. Yeah, that's nah, that's all that's right. a that and Piggies just sounds like he wrote it, both of those in like ten minutes. Um, so I mean, what's what's your favorite song on the White Album? Oh my god, it is hard to decide. It's it's really it's it's funny because like it's a toss up between the ending of side two because I love those two ballads so much. I will and Julia. Oh, they're, yeah. Those are oh right my there. god. What do you like more? I will or Julia? Yeah, you got to pick one. Julia. I will. Yeah. Doppelganger t- Patrick. Oh, <laughs> would have yeah. with me. The doppelganger version, the Stepford Patrick. With thinks Julia is much better than than I will, and he thinks you know what Paul McCartney's fun and all, but George Harrison was really deep. That's double. <laughs> That's Stepford Patrick. Tell me more. Whereas real Patrick is like, oh, I hate that guy. Um, yeah, I will is. Let's see. So my favorite songs on the White Album are uh, "Dear Prudence." Yes. Um, Blackbird. Yeah, those mm-hmm. are my two favorite. Those are my two favorite Beatles songs. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I will. Mm-hmm. Um, like, don't we do it in the road? <laughs> <laughs> I'm talking about road in five minutes. <laughs> no one 
Uh, will be watching us. <laughs> I love that about McCartney, though. McCartney will just fucking scream. Like everyone yeah. thinks about John Lennon as being the angry one, but McCartney's the screamer. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, McCartney's helter skelter. Um, so, so that's on the first. Uh, that's on the first album. On the I really like album, Cry Baby Cry. You like Cry Baby Cry? I do. That's pretty good. Yeah. Um, on the second album, I like Mother's Nature's Son. Mm-hmm. Uh, Healthy yeah, Skelter, cool. Long, Long, Long. Um, and I, yeah, I guess Cry Baby Cry would probably be the best on side four. Um, right. Yeah, okay. Okay, I'll give. I'll grant you, Harrison was an important member of the greatest rock band of all time. <laughs> sure. <laughs> but, I don't know, man. That, uh... I, I, I never saw that score. I think, I think maybe Scorsese could turn me. I think Scorsese might be able to convince me that George Harrison is interesting. Oh yeah, I bet. I haven't said I never saw that documentary he did, but man, Harrison, he, he's a snooze to me, man. Yeah, I like all things must pass. Yeah, well, I, then again, I have like no spirituality to speak of at all. Yeah, I mean, I mean, that's kind of what it is for me. Like, I'm not really coming from it from like someone who knows things about music. Yeah, yeah. Well, we don't know things about music either. We just did it because we wanted people to like us. You know what? <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking about the other, the other day. I was thinking, like, literally, like, I was trying to make music like the Mountain Goats because I wanted someone to like me the way I like the Mountain Goats. And that was pretty much all I knew about music. <laughs> I like you the way I like the Mountain Goats. There you go. I don't oh. want, I don't, you don't like me because of my music, but you know what I mean. <laughs> she only likes me for my doggy style. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Like Snoop Dogg. Um, but yeah, you like the George Harrison, sort of the spiritual one. Yeah, but that's because that, you know, resonates with me. Sure. I like, I don't know, like, it, everyone's like, oh, I gotta choose between Lennon and McCartney, and I think I got both sides. Like, I got the yeah. Plastic Ono band, and then I probably, I probably would love, I haven't listened to Ram in a while, but I know I loved it for a good long while. But oh, yeah, man. you gotta love both sides, I think. What's the what other than Beatles for Sale, which is the actual worst Beatles album? <laughs> what's your least favorite Beatles album? Wow, that's a good question. There's please it's hard. To, okay, so please please me and with the Beatles, it's hard to determine because there are like fifteen versions of both. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So let's say Hard Day's Night to Let It Be, excluding Beatles for Sale, which everyone forgets exists because it's so bad. <laughs> I really can't bring myself to listen to Yellow Submarine. Oh, I guess I don't count that either. Yeah. Or, or like, Magical Mystery Tour. I don't know. Maybe maybe crazy. Magical Mystery Tour. Maybe. That was my first That was my first Beatles album. That might be really? my least favorite. When I was Mine a, was Sgt. Pepper. When I was a... Oh, well, that's why you're so much smarter than me. Because you were listening to <laughs> Sophisticated... Oh, Patrick, that's six- not the only reason. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you were listening to Sophisticated 16-track musical geniuses, and I was listening... It was a proto-concept album, thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> and I was listening to goddamn Fool on the Hill. <laughs> oh, that song's no good. But um, yeah, there no. There's yeah, when I was, was a kid and I didn't know what the Beatles were. The first song I heard by the Beatles was "Yellow Submarine," and I just thought it was a kid song, like a children's song. Well, I mean, <laughs> and then I and then the next song I heard was "Obla Di Obla Da," which I thought was a children's song. So I just thought they were like this novelty <laughs> act that were popular. So to me, like I got. Magical <laughs> Bundle of Bill too sounds like a kid's song. Exactly, they had, and Piggies sounds like mm-hmm. a children's song. 
So, like, to me, I was like, oh, yeah, I like them because they write the goofy, wacky songs, and I yeah. like Weird Al and the Beatles, and to me, they're the same. <laughs> <laughs> like, and to me, like, Magical Mystery Tour, well, that's the one with I Am the Walrus on it, so <laughs> that's the one I'm going to do because that's their most wacky. You know, at the time, I didn't think about drug culture or anything like that, mm-hmm. or, like, to me, that was just cool because it was so crazy and silly. Like, it was random, and that was the best because I was in sixth grade, you right, know? right. Or fifth grade or whatever. But uh, anyway, uh, hot tip, everybody listening. The Beatles. Good band. <laughs> Get into it. Bonus podcast episode forthcoming on all the Beatles. Yeah. We should do that. I wouldn't mind doing a Beatles bonus <laughs> episode. Yeah, we could watch A Hard Day's Night and Help, too. It'd be fun. So, what's the director again? I forgot. And there's <laughs>